the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. They're averaging 2.06 goals per game. And I got to tell you, man, like the way that this league is going right now offensively, uh, where every night you're seeing, you know, low-scoring baseball games, basically. To be averaging two goals a game offensively in this league right now, that's that's a trick. Like, you've got to work hard to be that bad offensively, and the Blues have somehow found a way. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Alex's best friend, Greg Wyshynski, on the show a few weeks ago, talking with us about the Blues' struggles offensively. Alex, those struggles have reemerged offensively for them. And it's the same stuff that we've been talking about. This has been something that we've talked about in the past as well, not just this season, but in the Craig Berube era, where it's a question of, hey, are they shooting the puck enough? Should they be trying to get more pucks on net, or should they continue going with the philosophy of quality over quantity? Now, earlier today over on The Athletic, I thought it was a great story by Jeremy Rutherford. It's well worth your time. If you're not subscribing over there yet, you should make sure that you do so. He broke it all down with individual plays in this most recent game against the Stars, and he talked to three former NHL players about what the Blues should have done in those individual plays. And they seemed to come to the same conclusion where it's like, hey, you know, I understand people want to see them shoot, but they kind of made the right plays on these situations, and the Stars just played it really well, and that happens sometimes. But he also had some numbers in here. Over the last five years, here's where the Blues rank in terms of shots per game. Starting with 2018-2019. 15th, 21st, 23rd, 18th, and 22nd. Now, okay, if that's where you rank in terms of shots per game, how are you scoring so consistently? Here's where their shooting percentages ranked in those individual seasons. So the percentage of shots on goal that end up scoring. 14th, 10th, 14th, 1st, and this year they're 21st. This seems pretty simple to me, Alex. You can either get through a season being elite at getting the number of shots on net while not being great at the quality of the the number of those shots that go in or can be elite in terms of the shooting percentage. So you're getting high quality shots without having the quantity of shots. You got to be good, though, at one of those two things. And so far this year, it's the first time under Craig Berube that they have been below average at both of those things, both in terms of the number of shots that they're getting on net and also the number of shots going in when they shoot them. Something's got to give there eventually. Yeah, this team's just stuck in between. They're they're stuck in between two identities where they're trying to figure out, isn't there a Britney Spears song? I'm not a 
girl, but not yet a woman. I think that's a Britney <laughs> yeah. Spears song. That's kind of what I feel that's like right now that the blues Tanner, are. Have you ever heard a Britney I'm Spears song? I've heard of Britney Spears, but I have not listened to a lot not of her music. Yet a woman. That's what I feel like this blues team is right now. Like they're stuck this in between of we. I, I just got. <laughs> I didn't think we were going to get a Britney Spears reference in the first seven minutes of this show. Didn't see that one coming. Oh man. Well, you know, sometimes they just pop into your head whenever you're thinking. Um, this team knows that they have the offensive ability to score and be at the top of the NHL in terms of goals scored per game. They showcased it last year with nine different guys who scored 20 or more goals. Now, yes, you plucked one out of there, but you still have eight of those guys. But it's this knowing that we have the ability to score, but yet wondering if we can score it in different ways, if that makes sense. Like this no longer is that team that is going to dump the puck in and go after it and forecheck and get it and then make the play and cycle the puck. This is a team that's coming in off of the rush and they're waiting for that beautiful pass that's basically an empty net. And sometimes it works. The Florida Panthers game is a perfect example of the outlet pass and the speed of Jordan Cairo into the with skill. But other times it turns into what happened against the Dallas Stars, where Nico Mikola takes a stop, shot and it bounces off of a player's skate, goes the other way for a three-on-one. And that's where this team's at right now. Craig Bruby is preaching, go to the front of the net, put pucks to the net, get bodies in front, make it the dirty areas. The Blues are saying, no, we're going to play the skill that we know we have the ability to, and then you're you're in this, how are we going to play on the ice together? And that's where I feel like the disconnect really comes into play, where the defensemen don't know where the forwards are going, and the next thing you know, the defensemen are chipping in to try and cycle the puck, and the forwards are making the play, and it's coming the other way. I also think some of this is just a reflection of the talent that they have available to them right now. Like... I know that nobody wants to hear it because it's still the same conversation that we've had since the very beginning of the year. But man, some of this is a reflection of not having David Perron on the roster. It just is on the, that one timer on the power play was a big part of how they had success on the power play throughout the regular season last year, him being a shooting threat on that line with Ryan O'Reilly. It changes the way that teams are able to defend Ryan O'Reilly at the front of the net as well. Like Josh Levo has done an awesome job so far on that line with he and Brandon Saad. You know what would look even better, though? And this is no shot or... or Josh Levo and David Perron? Oh, man. Just David Perron in that spot instead of Josh Levo. And then maybe you put Levo somewhere else, like, for example, with Shin and Kairou. Like... I, and I'm not saying player. the only I'm not saying that the it, everything would be fixed if David Perron was here. Although I did watch a little bit of the uh, Detroit Red Wings game last night. David Perron had a goal in that game. Looks pretty good. Didn't By Sunday the way, too? Oscar Sundquist also had a goal last night. Ah. His second on the Wait, season. How, how he'll, he'll, be back, he'll be back playing with the Blues next so year. Uh, didn't see what Huso did in that game very much. I did Huso see, though, Jake Wallman, the forward that masquerades as a defenseman. Yeah. He was playing as well last so night. So the uh, wow. St. Louis Blues 2.0 yeah. is having a successful season. I, I understand people's sentiment, and you know what? I can't deny it. Like, David Perron has been around winning with this team in the last four years, and the team might be playing a little bit better. And I, I don't think it's as much as the quality on ice as I think David Perron's one of those guys that holds guys accountable on the See, bench and in the, the locker room. I think it's the on ice thing that they're missing the most right now. I, I, I mean, puck possession. Absolutely. But like David Perron's one line and the other three lines are still trying to figure that out. And the other three lines, look, Ryan O'Reilly and Brandon Saad and Josh Levo only had one scoring chance against with the Dallas stars. They're not the ones that seem to be on the ice for the odd man rushes the other way. It's when the Kairos and the Shens and the Barbashevs are out there. And it's when the Thomas and Tarasenko and Buchnevich's are out there. Yeah, I, I'm with you. 
but those lines get a boost as well by dropping somebody off of that O'Reilly line to play there instead of requiring Jake Neighbors to play in a spot where maybe he, he shouldn't be playing right now. But I don't know. if I mean, if Josh Levo gets bounced off of that line for David Perron. Levo's going to your fourth line. Nobody else is getting But if bumped. Thomas is playing, maybe it's Barbashev that drops down and now Levo isn't even in your top nine yeah. this season. I, I he's just, probably playing fourth line minutes. I, I think they're a better team. Now, this all being said, like, you mentioned how they're stuck in between. They had a decision to make in the offseason. They had was... to decide, do we build around the offense or do we trust the internal options? This sounds very Cardinalsy to help us offensively. And we try to bolster to the defense by keeping and retaining the services of Nick Letty. That's what they decided to do. Some agreed with it. Others disagreed with it. I think both sides had fair arguments on their favor. What we're seeing right now is a byproduct of that decision in the offseason. You also need other guys to step up, but I think that's a big part of this. And that's where I was going with this next. I mean, this you could talk David Perron all you want, and I know Nick Letty hasn't been a godsend for this team this season, but you feeling good about this team if your top four is Nico Mikola, Tori Crew, Colton Pareko, and Justin Falk? Yeah. I mean, look, like I said, Nick Letty hasn't been the savior on defense. I mean, he's sitting at a minus five for you this season, but I mean, it makes your team a little bit better, at least having that. See, to me, the problem isn't Nick Letty or David Perron. The problem was not acquiring the defenseman last year at the trade deadline for you. That was the top player to play in your top four to make your team better. But who was that guy? That's the thing. I mean, Hampus Lindholm and Jacob Chicken were the two guys available. And, and you if would you have- get Lindholm... I mean, you're paying him. What, what's the contract? Six and a half like, million dollars. Yeah, I mean, that's... Oh, he'd fit right in. That limits you elsewhere as well. You probably dollars. would have had to trade Barbie in the offseason in that case. Well, you would have been A-OK with that. You, your offense now, you don't have Barbie or Perron. And now Jake Neighbors, like, has to, regardless of injury situation, be in your top nine going into the season. You had a decision to make. It was offense or defense. And I think you can look at the numbers the last few seasons and say that the offense or last season, it was the middle of the pack. Defense was awful last year. And you needed to make sure that that was a... The offense wasn't middle of the pack, though. They were, like, one of the best in the league last year. But I thought it was the goal-scoring opportunities that you referenced that was in the middle of the pack. Uh, in shots terms of on shots goal. on oh, goal, shots, yes. That's what it was. They were the best in the league at putting yeah. those those shots that they did get. There was nobody that converted on a higher, higher rate of them, so they were one of the best offenses in the league. Your shortcomings year. were defense, and that's why it went to Nick Letty over David Perron. And unfortunately, the two guys that you were banking on have not lived up. That is the bigger fault right now. You had a lot of expectations in Jake Neighbors that has not lived up to it yet. And you had a lot of expectations in Logan Brown that has not lived up to it yet. That is more of the fault than it is. Well, we moved on from David Perron. You just put a lot of stock into two guys that weren't ready for this role. And you mentioned, would you feel more comfortable with Mikula in your top four? Going back to the offseason, the Blues tried that last year, and they saw what it looked like, and it wasn't good. For and, a short and, and, sample size, it was okay. Yeah, there were small spurts of it, but were you really going to bank on that after seeing after a big majority of the time when he was with Preco, it just didn't work out as him being a top four defenseman. No, you saw what it looked like. So you go get Letty at the deadline. You see it, it improves Preco's play. You think they're going to match well together. So I can understand saying, hey, we've seen it. Let's just let's go. Let's let's move our chips in on Nick Letty and we'll figure out. We haven't seen what it looks like without David Perron. We think we can go with Jake Neighbors or and Logan Brown in our top nine. So I can understand how the Blues looked at it that way. The thing for me, though, is when you look at the team in your middle of the pack in shots, which you've been under the Craig Berube era and you finish number one in shooting percentage, I don't know how you can pull from that top nine. I'd almost rather 
give another run with Nico Mikola at the time. And I said this in the office. I didn't know if I liked the Nick Letty deal at the time. But I'd much rather have gone with the, let's stick with our offense being our identity, keeping it the way it is with the shooting percent. And I know it's not like they're going to be first shooting percentage again, more than likely. But I'd almost rather would have seen him run it back with that. I know it's hindsight, run it back with that, and then figure out the defense later on. I think some of this, and maybe this is the case against what I'm saying, last year was an outlier year. It was never going to sustain the way that it was last year. They made, they converted shots into goals almost 11% of the time last year normalization should be around like eight or nine, but like some of the best players in the world, they're going to be up in that 11, 12, 13% range, but more often than not as a team. And this has certainly been the case for the blues over the years. It's around 8% in 2019, 8.1%. The next year, 8.6, 8.2. And then boom, 10 and a half percent of their shots went in. And this year you're at 7.8, which you would expect to regress in a good way in the not too distant future. If you're going to live that way, and you're not putting a bunch of shots on net, man, it gets really hard in the league where teams are scoring more than ever before. It is harder than ever before to defend in front of your own net and your defensive core is just okay. It's not elite. It's, it's okay. And when you play that way, this is what the results probably end up looking like. Cause they're not putting a bunch of shots on net. They're not converting on enough of them maybe this was always the most realistic outcome and it was never going to look the way that it did last year because that was completely unsustainable. It's like a guy that has a really good batting average on balls in play in baseball. Like if somebody hits 360 in terms of their batting average on balls in play, you don't expect that to continue the next year. If that guy hit free agency, we would probably look at the overall numbers like his batting average and his OPS and all that stuff. We'd be like, man, everybody wants to sign this guy. And Major League Baseball general managers would say, no, that guy's were going to regress this year. We don't believe what he did a year ago. It's the same as the opposite, right? Andrew Heaney. Why did the Dodgers sign him last year? Saw the underlying number. They're like, hey, I know the ERA is really high here, but we believe in him. We think he can be a really good pitcher. That's that's the way that these teams look at it. I wonder if Doug Armstrong looked at it after last year and said, yeah, David Perron, great year. Offense, great year. That's unsustainable. We're going to have to bet more on our defense. And it's worked in the past when he's done it. Did it with David Backus and it panned out okay for them. I mean, Alex Petrangelo hasn't regressed. He's had a couple of tough seasons in Vegas, but he's still kind of been the same player. But Doug Armstrong has accomplished this with other players, and who knows with David Perron? I mean, right now he's having a great season. He's doing the exact same things with your team. And as much I would have bet on him again, but I, I probably would have too because you, it's it's not so much about what the stats and the underlying numbers is, is it's the winning culture around that player being on a team and winning just seemed to follow him when he was with here or with the St. Louis Blues and wherever else he played. That's where I would have kind of equated it. Blues back in action tonight against the Carolina Hurricanes. Alex and Joey Vitale will have your pregame coverage starting at six o'clock. We will be joined by Joey coming up at eleven thirty. By the way, a little bit a, a quick note to pass along from practice this morning. It is an optional skate, so we don't have rush lines but Lou Korak passes along that Robert Thomas is good to go tonight he is expected to be back in the lineup so some good news for the Blues as they're getting a little more healthy heading into the Carolina game tonight coming up next another national analyst has made his prediction on where he thinks that the Cardinals will go for their catcher doesn't have a specific name does have the route that they'll go to acquire him we'll tell you what that is next year on 101 ESPN I'm not a girl to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Cardinals seem to be focused more on a trade for one of the catchers that is out there, either Sean Murphy or one of the three Blue Jays catchers. Now, there's no reason why a trade can't be made next week, too, but there is a big, intense focus on free agents now. So I do wonder whether the trade market will be somewhat stalled because of that, but it seems to me that those pursuits, those particular situations, Murphy and the three Blue Jays catchers, they're almost independent of the free agent market. There's not really a great catcher out there. Wilson Contreras is the biggest name, but he's not a great defensive catcher. So I could definitely see a deal happening with them, but I could also see it the other way too. It taking well, mid-December or late December, whatever. That was Ken Rosenthal on Scoops with Danny Mac. You can check out the full podcast at scoopswithdannymac.com. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be joined by Joey Vitale, the Blues analyst, coming up in about 10 minutes. Alex, that seems to be the consensus right now. What Ken Rosenthal had to say is that, ah, think that the Cardinals are most likely going to be solely focused over the next week to 10 days on who their catcher is going to be next year. And people seem to believe at this point that the likelihood is that they will trade for that player. One of the Blue Jays catchers or Sean Murphy from the Oakland Athletics seem to be the most likely options in such a scenario. Let's break down these three individually real quick. Sean Murphy is 27 years old. He's a very good hitter. He is clearly the best of this group that we're talking about defensively as well. Last season, 20% above league average offensively. It was his age 27 season. If you're somebody that's into the wins above replacement metrics, he was at 3.5 last year, which is a, a very good season for a catcher. He has three years remaining, all arbitration years, so he's not super expensive now. Probably won't be for another two years, and he's under contract for the next three seasons. Danny Jansen, also 27 years old, was excellent offensively last year, but it was really the first time that we've seen it from him. He's had injury issues in his past. He does not catch a lot of games typically, but was, again, very good offensively last year, is very athletic. He's a guy that if you're betting on the upside, he probably has the most of the group that we're talking about here, was 40% above league average offensively. He was essentially for the Blue Jays last year what Albert Pujols was for the Cardinals last year. So if you believe in it, That is a guy that you could be buying on the low. Now, he was about three wins above replacement, and he's got two years left. He has the least amount of club control remaining after this past season. The other guy that is available is Alejandro Kirk, potentially. He's the youngest of this group. He's 23 years old. He was about 25% above league average, so he's somewhere between Danny Jansen and uh, Murphy in terms of what he did offensively last year. He's had the most consistent offense, though, of these guys that we're talking about here. He had the highest wins above replacement last year, in part because he played more than these other guys. And he has five years remaining of club control. So you got a lot of team control. He's got to be cheap for the next two years. And then you start getting into the arbitration seasons. Alex, of these three, do you think that there's somebody that's most likely? Do you think that there is somebody that you personally would like to see them go after? How would you divulge like wh- where you're at on these trade options? I think I'm out on Sean Murphy in both of these sense because as much as I'd want Sean Murphy, I know there's a ton of capital that you're going to have to give up to acquire him. And on top of it, I don't think the Cardinals are going to do that for that reason. So like I've kind of eliminated Sean Murphy in my mind altogether. So now it comes down to the Blue Jays catchers. I think I would prefer Alejandro Kirk because the main thing that I've heard them discuss is fixing the offense while getting an everyday catcher. And although T-Bone doesn't believe Alejandro Kirk can last all season long, don't appreciate that, by the way. I think Alejandro Kirk 
does two things. It gives you an everyday catcher and an upgrade your offense. Protects goal, uh, Goldie and Arenado, gives you a middle-of-the-order bat, and you're probably not giving up as much you do, you'd have to, to get Sean Murphy. But I believe the Cardinals are going to get Danny Jansen because Danny Jansen is a guy who was having a career year last year, and Danny Jansen is a guy that you're probably, if you're Toronto, selling high on. And you're hoping that it doesn't pay off and you probably get okay assets back. That screams Cardinals because you're not giving up the main players and you're saying, well, we think we can fix this guy and keep that train rolling. Let's put it a different way. Danny Jansen is to the trade market what Christian Vasquez is to the free agency market. He's not at the high end. He's not at the low end. He's somewhere in between and you can talk yourself into him if you really try to. Yeah, and I, I think when you look at the trade options, I, I'm still, though I do question Alejandro Kirk as a long-term catcher, and, and look, the goal would probably be that he's here until he reaches free agency, yeah, which five is... Years. Yeah, so... <laughs> oh, God. And, and then, by the end, if you don't like it, you could either trade him or just decide to non-tender him yeah, if it doesn't and, go well. And your hope would be Herrera can develop behind him at sure. some point and be able to take that job. So I, I think Kirk's number one for me because I don't think he's going to cost as much as Sean Murphy because I agree with Alex. I... Everybody seems to be in on Sean Murphy, which is just going to drive up the the asking price. And if it wasn't going to cost you, again, I go back to this has been a while now since Derek Gold had this in one of his chats where it was going to cost you a a guy that's major league ready, like Nolan Gorman, one of your high end pitching prospects, and like a mid tier guy as well. Like that's too much in my opinion for Sean Murphy. He's a decent player, but I, I don't want to pay that for Sean Murphy. He he doesn't move that needle that much for me. And everybody's interested. So the Guardians are like the team that's really pushing heavy now. So. I think Kirk's probably the guy for me. I just don't buy into Jansen's career year. I said this yesterday. It kind of reminds me of like looking at Tyler O'Neill's baseball reference page where it's where there's a lot of inconsistency and then there's one outlier. I wouldn't bank on that outlier, as you saw the Cardinals did this year. And O'Neill just wasn't healthy and he wasn't the right guy when he was healthy. So I think in terms of the trade market, I look at um, I look at Alejandro Kirk. And I agree with Ken Rosenthal because originally my thought process, all these guys that we talk about on the trade market, Sean Murphy projected $3.7 million on the in arbitration. Uh You've got Danny Jansen around the same figure there. All these guys are making less than $5 million. So my thought process is the Cardinals being connected to these guys, they want the catcher position to make less than $5 million, whoever it is they had. So I think they're out on Contreras. But then I look at the other guys like Vasquez, who we're talking about. Um, I'm trying to think if they're – I think he's the only guy I can think of. Zanino, you've got Your Armand, Damn Tucker Barnhart. Yeah, Barnhart. I think Zanino I don't know about. Barnhart and Vasquez may get more than $5 million, I think, because we saw Vasquez is now connected to the Chicago Cubs. That was reported by Bob Nightingale this morning. Also, I saw a report, I think, from his son who covers the Cincinnati Reds saying that they have interest in Tucker Barnhart. So there's going to be Man, small two, bidding two wars for these guys. going after that catcher. Yeah, but you got to fight for him. But I think it could drive their price past that $5 million dollars and i think that's what the cardinals want especially if we're saying hey they only got 20 million dollars to spend do you really want to use 25 percent of that on the catcher when you can bump that down to like 20 by going with around 3 million for jansen and kirk and i understand you've got to do the trading of assets but i think that they're going to look more at that and say okay the two million dollars we can save can go towards a bullpen arm that we can add later on so i think it is the trade route that they're going to look at i agree i think this all comes back to though how much do they value the defensive side of things And I just don't know the answer to that question because they haven't had to answer it over the last 15 years because they've always had a guy internally that is a defensive-minded catcher. And so if they want that, Sean Murphy's the only one out of these three that really provides it the way that you would would hope. 
He's an excellent defensive catcher and also brings the offense to the table. So in that scenario, is it worth it to trade a lot to acquire Sean Murphy? Because it's going to be a a bigger asking price than any of us are expecting probably right now, especially any of the listeners that think, hey, you could just trade Nolan Gorman for him one for one. No, it's it's going to be a costly package. It's going to be Gorman as the headliner and then include like Graceffo and probably more in terms of the prospect capital that's going their way. So keep that in mind in terms of the cost. I don't know if the Cardinals would deem that to be worth it or not. It, it really just depends on what they, how they value the defensive side. If they think that is a huge portion of what they get out of their catcher value, well, then they probably want him. Or they'll go with the Christian Vasquez or something like that and decide not to go with the Blue Jay side of things, even though that's... I, I would I would have Kirk, I've said this all along, as my clear-cut number one option. Agreed. And, and he's not... Awful defensively. Like, looking at his okay. baseball savant page, he was 94th percentile in framing. And that's one of the pluses that you had with Yager Molina was he could handle the pitching staff, and he was very good at I think he was a personal pitches. catcher also for uh, Manoa. I think he was the guy that caught Manoa oh, last so year. So you're thinking, like, package oh, deal? Package oh, Manoa, too. Great. Uh, but the Damn. one thing he is bad at, his pop time to second. They have that yeah, which as is a baseball expected. savant, and he's not good at that. So. And he's slow. It's fine. <laughs> he's, it's fine. Guys aren't going to be stealing a he's lot this year because he's doesn't shift. move very well, which is what you'd expect. But guess what? He's he hits the ball really hard, and he's he's pretty good at the framing stuff. So he he can be a starting catcher for you, and you feel good about it. We'll get to questions and answers coming up in 15 minutes. Joey Vitale answers our questions next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We're going out to the Brown and Kirvin Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend, the Blues Analyst for 101 ESPN. You'll hear him on the call for Blues versus Hurricanes right here on 101 ESPN tonight at 7 o'clock. He is the one, the only, the bread man, Joey Vitale, joining Joey, us here on the show. Joey, Joey, ah, you're so awesome. What's up? What's up, fellas? How are we doing today? Joe, what's going on, man? How you doing? Hey, doing great. Just leaving the rink. Just leaving the rink right now. A nice optional this morning uh, for the Blues and uh, heading into a big game tonight against the Carolina Hurricanes. Big test coming up. A lot of, a lot of big games. Heavy opponents here for the St. Blues. Let's start with this, Joe. It sounds like Robert Thomas is going to be back on the ice for the Blues tonight. Is that your expectation as well? That is, uh, that'd be accurate. Yeah, that would be accurate. I saw him this morning. He looked good. He looked like he was in good spirits as well. So my uh, my expectation would be that we see Robert Thomas uh, on the ice again here tonight. Now uh, the line that he goes with, I tell you what, it's been it's been a bit of a revolving door before he went out of the lineup you know, before last game was his first game he missed this season. So you know, will it be the Buchnevich and Tarasenko? We've seen him with Cairo and, and Buchnevich at times. So I think Craig Berube is going to kind of. Tip his um, tip his toes into different things uh, throughout the lineup here and throughout the game here tonight, and kind of see what the chemistry looks like early on. But yes, it, it is my full expectation based off of what I saw this morning that we will see Robert Thomas again here tonight. So with that being said, Joe, I was looking at some of the numbers for this matchup for the Blues because once again, back in the Eastern Conference after you played three straight on that road game, Carolina is is not a Carolina team that we remember. Carolina is like the fifth least goals per game this season. And I would imagine Craig Berube's probably looking at least for how the last couple of games have gone where the Blues have lacked of getting those goals and getting that pressure in front of the net. This might be one of those games where you absolutely needed him back in the lineup. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, this is like, like you said, Alex, this is a very differently built Carolina hurricanes team uh, than it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. I mean, Rod Brindamore has done such a fantastic job with this team in the sense that they, they attack, they keep so much pressure, so much pressure on their opponent throughout the entire game. That, that's what's impressive. It's almost like, uh, it's like from start to finish, you know, there are teams that have really good periods and then they maybe take a period off. But what's, what's impressive about their team is it's a, it's a commitment to 60 minutes. And I think it's almost to the fashion of how Rod Brindamore, Blind, he played that way. And then of course the leadership with, you know, Jordan Stahl and uh, they're getting some really good youthful guys coming up. I mean, Sebastian Ajo has been on an absolute tear. Pesci's been a great shutdown defenseman. So they're getting the veterans, they're getting the backside, um, and they're getting the young guys coming up. And, and they're all playing very, very well. They're also getting great goaltending. And that's crazy to say because without Freddie Anderson being out, you know, you think that you'd, uh, that's where they would lack a little bit. But got this young Russian goaltender who uh, they just are absolutely extremely, extremely high on. Will it be here, him or Auntie Ranta here tonight? Um, still up in the air right now. We, we didn't get a chance to see who, who they would go with here tonight. But uh, like, like you said, it's, it's going to be a, a hard push here tonight. Uh, it, it's a 60-minute commitment. Uh, they put pressure on you. Much like Dallas, they're going to send in two four-checkers, the third guy very high. They close plays out very quickly. Um, the, one, the one area, the biggest area of tonight's game I think you've got to really focus on is, is how their forecheck impacts the game. They're a forechecking team. They dump, they chase. It's a four-line commitment. And will will Jordan Bennington be able to be the difference here tonight in the sense that he will come out and, of course, shut down that forecheck by playing the puck, moving into the defenseman, and hopefully getting out of the zone pretty quickly. Joey Vitale is our guest here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate his time. Joey, I want to bring you in on the conversation that we had a little bit ago, and it's it's in reference to a piece that Jeremy Rutherford uh, put out earlier today on the, on the Blues shooting and whether or not they're putting enough pucks on net. I was a little surprised by the numbers. They're, they're basically shooting the exact same number of shots per game as they have been over the course of the Craig Berube era. They, they were around somewhere between 29 to 31 each of the last four seasons, and they're at 30 so far this year. The thing that's changed is the shooting percentage. They're not converting on the same number of chances as they had been in previous years, especially last year. What are you seeing in regards to that? Just when you're looking at it with the eye test, do you feel like they're passing up too many opportunities? You know, listen, I think that last year, I think to be fair, I think we caught light in the bottle in a lot of areas of how much, how many goals we scored. I mean, there's a reason why I think it was nine, 20 goal scores we had last year. I mean, those are astronomical numbers. That was, that was like what no team had experienced, right? You know, to, to say that that should become the norm um, for a lot of fans out there, I mean, that, that is not the norm. And then there's a reason why a lot of history was made last year. Uh, you know, Vladimir Tarasenko uh, surpasses the, the point-per-game threshold, the first player to do it since Pavel Dimitri. I mean, it's been a long time. Pavel Dimitri, that was a long time ago. So uh, it's more the norm, I think, what we're seeing this year. And, and I know it's, it's hard because you, you have to compare that to last year because you do have a lot of the same personnel. Uh, but but that was a lot of lightning in, in the right bottle last year. I think they were um, opportunistic about their shots. And when they started going in, it just really snowballed. And then you have confident shooters and confident goal scorers. And, of course, that can go in a, in a much better direction. I think, you know, a couple things to answer your question, PK, that have certainly jumped off the page this year um, as, as to why. I mean, yes, you do you do lose David Perron. And, you know, he was one of your best goal scorers last year. So that that's certainly from a personnel standpoint. that That is someone that – Right now, they have just not replaced, especially on the power play as that one-timer threat. You know, I think the other thing, too, is as you start a season, 
you can start slow, you can start fast. And I think right now the Blues, from a goal-scoring standpoint, for some of these goal scorers, they've gotten off to a little bit of a slow start. You know, let's just look at Vladimir Tarasenko, where his numbers are compared to last year. Um, and, of course, obviously one of his best years in the league was last year. Now he's a bit a bit slower of a start as he's quarter way through the season. You know, what happens to a player is that, that confidence gets shaken a little bit, whether you're a first-year guy or a 10-year guy. I mean, longest-tenured Blue, you think, you know, what does he have anything to be unconfident about? But he, he's still a player. I mean, the, the, these goal scorers go through this. And as, as you can start hot, you can start slow. And I think when you start slow, when you get off to a bit of a, a temper start like he has, that, that, that kind of gets, gets in, your, in your psyche as well. And then you start gripping the stick a little bit tighter, and then maybe you're not as confident in the power play. And then you feel like maybe the players in the power play aren't as confident delivering it to you. So I think a lot of that's going on. I, I certainly think um, from a goal-scoring standpoint, I think that I think the Blues can all, all increase their points if, if we've been talking about a while, but certainly having a one-time threat on, on one unit or definitely both units, because that, that is certainly going to not only open up things for the one-timer player, but also it's going to open up things for everyone else on that power play. And, and, I, and I do think that you look at last year's goal scoring as well, uh, the power play made a big difference. I mean, that is something that we just have not seen as much this year where we were, were okay five on five, maybe we kill a few penalties, but here comes the power play. I mean, last year it almost seemed like game in, game out, it was automatic. The power play was going to deliver. And right now, we just do not have that same um, proficiency on the power play where, where they're winning those games. And a lot has to do with the, the one-timer threat that right now we just seem like we do not have. A lot of inter- interchangeable parts. They're still trying to find chemistry with some of the new bodies as well. Uh, but definitely uh, definitely a concern here for St. Louis, and, and they're going to continue to hopefully write that ship here tonight. Joe, uh, Craig Berube made some comments of Alexei Torpchenko yesterday just talking about how they just need him to get back to the level that he was playing at it last season, and of course that shoulder comes into play here. He's in Springfield right now getting those reps for them, but Jake Neighbors is still up here, and this kind of ties into the power play one-time shot. I'm a little surprised that Jake Neighbors is on the fourth line just because Doug Armstrong made the comments of him being a top-nine forward, otherwise he's going to be a top-line player in Springfield to get his confidence. And with that one-time threat, are you a little surprised that maybe they haven't dipped their toe in the water of maybe like a Martin Furk or a Matthew Highmore to come up and possibly be the fourth-line player and provide a little bit more spark? Uh, so, so Furk, obviously, I think he's got one of the nastiest one-timers in the organization right now. Um, you know, he's been in the league a long time. He certainly had that ability when he was in L.A., uh, but I think aside from the shot, though, I think that he his game does drop off a little bit. So I think that that's, that's the concern to bring up a player like that because you can't bring up necessarily just a power play specialist, especially in the forward position, right. if they're going to eat up if they're going to eat up a roster spot. You know, so that that that's number one. Um, for Jake Neighbors, you know, I think that yes, you have him on the fourth line, and and is that a good spot for him? No, but guess what? It's not really a good spot for anybody. I mean, no disrespect to anyone who's playing the fourth line, but. But you're never you're never really going to get a lot of success in the fourth line. But at the same time, I think that you look for it as an opportunity to do something in the game to make an impact and hope hope for more. I mean, Craig Berube, he's he's old school. You have to earn it, especially these young guys. He's not just going to you know hand it to you on a platter. Even even when um, you know uh, Alexandrov, Nikita Alexandrov was up, you know he took took some games before he got up into a third line. And then after about seven or eight, then he got some first line looks. I mean, it does take time, and you have to earn that trust of Craig Berube. And right now, Jake Neighbors is still in that. He's still in earning the trust of Craig Berube. And, and I think that Craig Berube has not seen it from a consistent game in game out basis where he can trust him to play top six minutes and maybe, maybe, uh, 
monitor kind of a, a power play situation, at least for a little while, and then, and then jump in. The good news, I will say, for Jake Neighbors, although, yes, you are on that fourth line, uh, Alex and BK, like, like we've seen the last couple of games, they have run that 11-7 set, 11 forwards, 7 defensemen. So there really isn't a fourth line that's established right now over the last handful of games for St. Louis. That There's basically three lines and two extra. So Craig Berube is going to treat it just as that. He's going to run three lines, and he's going to throw in one of those extra guys, whoever's going. I actually sat down with Jake Neighbors this morning, and, and I said I thought he had good legs last game. And, and I said, you know, Craig's one of those play- coaches. If he sees you going, if he sees you going early, you know, he's going to give you more minutes. And then Jake, of course, interrupted me. He said, he goes, you're absolutely right. He said, it feels like it's the first few shifts. If you have a good first few shifts and you have legs, and he sees that you have legs, he's going to give you opportunity. You're, you're going to get shifts with some top six players. So, again, uh, with it being 11 forwards, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, four lines with an extra thrown in on that fourth line. It's the opposite. It's the, he likes to run three lines, and then out of Achari or maybe Jake Neighbors, which of those two players seem like they have really good legs and some jump in the game, and Hill's going to sub those guys in maybe on a Braden Chen or a Ryan O'Reilly shift every now and depending on how those wingers are going as well. So certainly certainly not a great spot for Jake to be on that fourth set, but at the same time, plenty of opportunity coming up tonight, and especially because there's going to be a lot of games coming up as well, as after tonight the Blues head into a 3-4 and four, Pittsburgh and then the Rangers and the Islanders. He's Joey Vitale. You'll hear him on the call tonight for Blues versus Hurricanes. That starts at puck drop starts at 7 o'clock. Alex and Joey will bring you a pregame starting at 6 right here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Joe, appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy the game tonight. We'll talk with you again next week. That sounds good, boys. You guys have a great day. You See got you, Joe. it. Joey Vitale here on 101 ESPN. We'll talk more about that fourth line situation coming up in the one o'clock hour. But coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. the air comfort service text line for questions and answers uh you get your questions in there we will answer them here on 101 espn from the 618 hey guys the cardinals have a new hitting coach if they score four runs they per do? game more consistently and not zero in one game and 10 in another do you think that that would be considered more of a success for them i think the answer is yes but i will ask this alex just as an amended question because I, I find the you didn't like the texter's question? You're going to change I it? I think we can make it better. Oh, sorry, wow, texter. this guy. This guy's gotten real cocky over it's the last okay, couple of days. Line. Listen, there you want no to be condescending BK. Here you go. Well, Here's you did my yesterday to me. So, you know, I went home and I just sat there as a horrible person because I felt like an awful person. Quit being such a good father, yeah. right? Would you, would you chill? I basically <laughs> told my daughters, I said, I'm not playing with you tonight because Sloop plays tonight and I need to sit and watch the damn game. Yeah, Tennessee State. You got to be locked in, man. Um, by the way, nice performance last night by Watch, by Slew. Watched Frozen too. <laughs> that makes sense. Of course you did. You should know that movie by like. Did you do the sing along with it? The, uh, no. Yeah, hell yeah, I do the sing along okay. with it. So back okay. to the question. Amend the question. 
how do you think we're going to evaluate the Cardinals hitting instructor this year? No. <laughs> does it does it no longer become an important factor now that Jeff Albert's no longer in that spot and it's Turner Ward who's no, like it's going to be blamed on Turner Ward and then it's not the analytics anymore. I, it's well, he's too old school. I disagree. I think it'll be blamed on the assistant hitting. Coach. I don't think people uh, know who. I don't think people know who the assistant hitting coach is. They're going to learn. What's his? They're going to learn today. I'm drawing a blank on his name. What's his name again? I'm drawing a blank. You don't even know what his name is. I know. I'm drawing a blank on it. People are going to blame um, Turner Ward. I feel like Blake something, but no, no that's, that's Dusty Blake. It's Dusty that's Blake. That's old Dusty. That's why I got it mixed up. Brandon Allen. Oh, right, oh Brandon of course Allen. it's Brandon. Oh, oh my God! I can't the wait to play the cut all the time next year. Brandon. No, I think it's going to be turned award. And I think what's going to happen is it's going to flip. You're going to have the other side of the fan base come out and say, well, this guy's too old school. You need to get more analytics involved with your hitting side of the game. I'm not sure there's much of that fan base that exists. Oh, there are. Well, to be fair, are. Brandon Allen was a professional baseball player, so oh, he, he does have that going for him. Is he like the equivalent of you as a college football player? I didn't play college football. Exactly. <laughs> he played for the Diamondbacks for three years. Oh, he was okay. with the A's for a couple of years and the Rays for a year. So everyone back off Brandon Allen. Yeah, he's he's a he's gonna be a great assistant hitting no, coach. You, this you year. know what really you've got Matt Holiday in there. Yeah. Like, people aren't gonna You know what really is gonna happen? People are gonna watch the Mets succeed and then complain that oh Jeff Albert couldn't get that done here. I can see that definitely. Troller text. Turner Ward is Jeff Albert Jr. Troller text. Text. I don't think it's a Turner Ward is Jeff Albert Jr. Just making sure that we're all on the same page. So that is not 100. percent They do know that like I Turner thought, Ward's a polar opposite of that, right? I thought Jeff Albert had a successful season as hitting coach last year I did too. because the offense ranked pretty no, high in most categories. No nah, man didn't score runs in the postseason. I get it, but <laughs> no nah, man. Uh, Only two players hit the ball. Everyone else stunk. We're going by that. There are 29 different hitting coaches and pitching coaches that should be let go because the oh, yeah? team didn't win the World oh, Series. Oh, you think the Phillies hitting coach is bad right now? Yeah, they didn't perform in the World Series. They got to the, the, the uh, championship There's series. There's only one champion. And it wasn't So Billy. then everyone else should get fired. Yeah. All right. They got to go. <laughs> we need to amend this question. Do something else. 65780 is your comfort service text line from the 314. Hey, guys, I know it's not a conversation anybody wants to have, but Deshaun Watson does return to the field this weekend. What are you expecting from him purely from an on-the-field perspective? Is this Deshaun Watson's agent right now asking this question? I think it's a fair question. I mean, the Browns are technically still in the playoff race. Uh, They're four and seven, and their schedule does open up a bit. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, we all know the talent that Deshaun Watson possesses, but like you can't really separate the two because internally, what's this guy going to be going through? Especially returning in Houston. Yeah. I just I still cannot With, believe that they like, allowed that to happen. And you know there's going to be people there that are going to be very vocal about Deshaun Watson. Like there's listening gonna- to a podcast today and they said that they the expectation is there will be protest outside of the stadium and that some of the accusers will yeah. be in the stadium. So if I were to, to go one way or the other, I would say Deshaun Watson's probably going to struggle because like there's a lot mentally to be going on in this person's head for a game like this. So I really don't know what to expect from Deshaun Watson. I I think he struggles in the first half. I, I think it takes him a half to get going. And after a half, you know, once you get into halftime, you kind of get back into the flow of, okay, I'm back to the NFL action. And let's just be honest, Houston stinks. I mean, I, I think the first half, I, I think it's going to be close. But by the time we get to the second half, I think you see Deshaun Watson starting to show more signs of the quarterback he was when he was with the Houston Texans. So I wouldn't say I would expect a big game from him, 
but I would say it's going to be an okay game. I, I think once you get past this week, then I think you'll see Deshaun Watson of old where it's a really good quarterback, top 10 quarterback in the NFL. I think sometimes we underestimate just how good Deshaun Watson was on the field because of everything, understandably so, everything that took place off of the field. Prior to all of this stuff, I thought Deshaun Watson was the second best quarterback that I would want to start my team around in the NFL. Like it was Patrick Mahomes for me, number one. And like where people now have Josh Allen and Joe Burrow and maybe you throw like Jalen Hurts into that category. Whoever you think is in that second tier of guys that you would want to build your team around right now. I had Deshaun Watson there before all of this stuff. So what do I expect from him? I think he's going to be really good, man. That supporting cast is, is like underrated because Jacoby Brissett was the quarterback, I think, for the first 11 weeks of the season. You've got Amari Cooper, who's a really good wide receiver. Donovan Peoples-Jones has really come on this year as a number two. If David Njoku is playing, we don't know because he got he had that knee issue once again reappear for him. He's a, a very good tight end. And you've got that that duo at running back. This is this is an offense that should be really good around him. I think he's going to put up a really, really good game on Sunday. And it's going to be weird for all of us to watch. But just from a purely on-field perspective, I think he finishes with like 60 yards rushing, three total touchdowns, and like 270 through the air. I think he's going to have a really good game because it's the Texans. I I think it would be different if he was going up against the Cincinnati Bengals this week and the Texans next. I think he's going to have a really nice game this weekend. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get into a game of Believe It or Not, Tanner's favorite time of the week. But next, which Cardinals are most likely to go in the wrong direction next year? We talk a lot about what could hit, what goes right. What should we be worried about from the other range? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. In 10 minutes, we'll play a game of Believe It or Not. If you guys have any scenarios for us, send them in on the, on the Air Comfort Service X line at 65780. But right now, we're talking a little bit about the Cardinals. We talk a lot about what could go right for the Cardinals next year, but we don't we don't really specify what could go wrong. And what I mean by that is who's going to regress? Because the Cardinals had a lot of players that outperformed expectations a year ago, especially the young guys that came up and immediately performed on the big stage. Guys, if you had any one player that you think is going to regress from where they were a year ago, and it doesn't mean that they're going to be bad, but just won't have the same kind of year that they did last year, who would you go with for that, Alex? I think I would probably go, man, I'm like debating internally between two guys. I'm debating between Miles Michaelis and Paul Goldschmidt. And I think I would probably lean more towards Miles Michaelis because that was the best of Miles, and I'm not sure you're going to get that next season, which might impact your pitching staff. I think Paul Goldschmidt also will regress back to who he is in terms of the first couple of months of the season. He's slow out of the gate, and then he just heats up once it gets warmer outside. But You're basically saying that. He's not going to be the best hitter in He's all of baseball, be which is an MVP. a reasonable thing to say. But the only reason I kind of hesitated with Paul Goldschmidt was because whatever he did in the offseason to change his swing and the bat approach, like it significantly worked. So maybe this is the new Paul Goldschmidt. I just don't believe this Miles Michaelis is this Miles Michaelis for a full 162 games. 
Yeah, I, I like the Michaelis one too because he was a guy that I kind of had circle as. I think he's going to regress a little bit as well. I also think Helsley kind of comes back just a That's little a bit. I, I'm not saying he's going to be a guy that has like a 3.5 ERA or 4 ERA and struggles to close games out. But, I mean, when you look at his numbers, a 1.25 ERA and with 90 days finishing out 33 games, like his numbers are probably going to come back as well. And I agree with the Paul Goldschmidt one. I don't think Goldie's going to be the best hitter on the planet for an entire season. I think he could go through spurts where you see him that way. And then the other guy that I also have on this list, and I know it's a long list, and it's probably why my offseason is a lot longer of a to-do list than Moe's. But Paul uh, well, he, I would like to think There's he can't go, go much further <laughs> down. Uh, is Brendan Donovan. I think Donovan oh, will come down just oh, a little man. bit as well. Why did you have to use seven different players? Come on, you man. named the whole damn team. This is why they need to have a significant an offseason and go get themselves yeah. as Xander Bogarts. But I, Donovan's the last guy on my list, so go ahead, BK. Damn, you can't name that many players. Well, that that was mine. Um, on the pitching side of things, I've got Jordan Montgomery and Andre Pallante as like the honorable mentions for me. Pallante relies so much on balls in play that it's just it's hard to believe that he's going to be able to be like a 3-0 ERA guy next year. I, I think he's still going to be pretty good. I just don't think it's going to be that. And Jordan Montgomery, like the first, what, six, seven starts that he had with the Cardinals were just unbelievable. And I think he's going to be a good pitcher for them. That was so far out of his career norms that I don't think we can expect him to be what he was at the beginning of his tenure here in St. Louis. So those, that would be why I would have those. On Brendan Donovan, this is one of those where I think people are going to hear me say that he's going to regress and immediately assume like, oh, that means he's going to be bad. BK, you're so wrong. He's a good. No, I, I think he'll still be a useful player. I don't know that he's going to hit 285 next year. I don't know that he's going to have an on-base percentage nearing 400 next year. I think he's going to be closer to a slightly above average league hitter than I think he's going to be like 30% above league average, one of the more productive players in the National League. So he would be a guy that I would hone in on as, I think he's going to be good. I think he's going to be useful, but it's more in the like 10% above league average hitter than 30% above league average hitter. That's where I am with him. I, I just don't think he hits for 285. And if I remember correctly, I have, I have to go back and look at his baseball savant page. I don't think his like underlying numbers are like super like – I don't think there's a lot of red on that baseball savant page. No, he doesn't hit the ball very hard. He's a guy, he though, that – He kind of reminds me of Carlson. Exactly. And sometimes we get – we almost become like too interested in those numbers. Some guys just know how to hit well, and they hit to all fields and – you just you put the ball in place so consistently that it doesn't really matter too much how hard you're hitting it. You'd rather them hit it harder as opposed to the opposite. He's apparently doing the same thing this offseason that Goldie and Arenado did last year. So maybe that helps him a little bit and it, it helps him sustain some of the numbers that we're talking about here. But I think he'll be good. I don't think that he'll be overwhelmingly great like he was this year. If he is going to regress... Does that make it even more important for them to go out there and get a left-handed hitter? Because if you think he's going to regress, if you're going to possibly have to trade a Lars Newtbar to get your catcher, and if we're uncertain about Nolan Gorman, those are your three main lefties that you're relying on this season. And if one regresses, one's gone, and one's an uncertainty. It's a fair question. I mean, I think you're at the point where rather than us sitting here saying, you got to go like this is why I feel like the Xander Bogarts and the shortstops are so important because it's a kidder who can hit no matter what lefty or righty. But if you're not doing that, I think that makes Cody Bellinger and Michael Conforto and those left handed options even more of a need for this team rather than a want if we're thinking that the regressions are going to take place. I, I think it comes down to not so much on Donovan, it comes down to 
is Newpar the guy that goes in a trade package? And that's where I think it comes down to: Do you add a left-handed hitter? Because I think, I think with Donovan and Gorman, I think they will bet. Maybe, maybe they do think Gorman or not Gorman. Excuse me, Donovan will regress a little bit. But I think if you were, if we were to do the opposite of this and who you look at on this roster and say they're going to take a big step forward next year, I think the Cardinals and I would say it too would put Nolan Gorman on that list for in terms of a left-handed hitting middle infielder. In the outfield conversation, I think it comes down to if you tr- have to trade Lars Newpar, then it, then it turns to okay, what do we think of Alec Burleson? I, I think I thought he looked overmatched last year, and it was such a small sample size. I get it, but it's going to be tough for him to turn that around quickly in the short sample size he had and be ready to do it for next season. That if you trade Lars Newpar, then I think they look to go out there and get that left-handed bat. And I think it's just solely on Newpar, not on Donovan. They or could Norman. also say, like, I know he's not a left-handed bat, but we think that Jordan Walker can be what Lars Newbar was. And it obviously is different because it's a right-handed hitter, but if they believe that he can hit both sides, it doesn't really matter which side you bat from. It's like, it, does anybody care that Nolan Arenado is a righty? No, because it doesn't matter who the pitcher is that you throw out there. He's going to be able to hit against them. Same thing's true for Paul Goldschmidt. So I, I think that it definitely, there's a, there's a case to be made there, Alex, especially if you do end up trading one of Lars Newbar or Nolan Gorman. I think they could use a left-handed bat regardless of what happens with those guys, but it becomes even more important potentially if they end up trading one of them. And I think you're right too, Tanner. I think it comes down to whether or not they believe Alec Burleson can be that guy. Because if he can, then you don't necessarily need to add from the outside. You've got somebody internally that can be And that's why I would prefer them just to go get a hitter who doesn't matter who he's hitting against because then you can use the assets of guys who hit well against righties and hit well against lefties. And rather than saying, well, that's the impact bat that we need with Goldie and Arenado, but he's only going to be able to do this against righties or only going to be able to do this against lefties. And when you bring up left-handed hitters, it immediately comes to, for a lot of people, the rule changes where they become even more impactful additions in the offseason because their batting average could go up because now you have the elimination of the infield shift and that could potentially help left-handed hitters disproportionately. Randy Carrick earlier today on the opening drive had some thoughts on the changes to the rules and what that could mean for the Cardinals offseason. Here's what Randy had to say. Not that I don't want the bat. I, I would like the bat, but I do like the idea of winning the World Series. And teams that win the World Series inevitably have a ton of arms. But you gotta score runs. That's true. Well, here's the thing. You gotta have a bat. And especially now, Gary, with the rules changes, you can manufacture runs. You cannot manufacture pitching. Do you think their teams are gonna go back to that style of play? Manufacturing runs? Absolutely. Yeah, shorter distance between first and second. The velocity of pitches is going to go down. There's gonna be a whole lot more contact, a whole lot fewer strikeouts. I think this is one of the discussions that is probably going to become even more prevalent as we get closer to the season. And there are fair arguments on either side. And I think everybody is going to be entrenched on their side until we see the actual on-field results and what that means. And then one side's going to be right and the other side's going to be wrong. I think we're overstating some of this on what the rule changes are going to mean for Major League Baseball. I, I don't personally think that we're going to see the return of the stolen base. Will a guy like Tommy Edmond benefit from this? Yeah, I think so. I think instead of being a 30 to 35 stolen base guy, maybe he's 45 to 50. I don't think, though, that this is going to mean that Paul Goldschmidt is going to become a 20 stolen base guy. I don't think that Dylan Carlson is going to be a 25 to 30 stolen base guy as a result of this. So I I think that some of that, in my opinion, is getting a little overstated. I also think that the velocity thing, I just have seen no evidence personally 
that that changes anything from what we've seen from the minor league pitchers. Guys down in the minors are still throwing 97, 98, 99, 100 miles per hour. We're seeing them come up, and they're just they're throwing consistently. Like Spencer Strider is a guy that is just, it doesn't matter that he's potentially going to be limited by the pitch clock. That dude is still going to throw 98-plus regularly. Ryan Helsley still going to throw 100 miles per hour next year, and they're just going to change their workout routine in the offseason to get them ready for that. They have the entire offseason to be prepared. Dusty Blake was on with them a couple of weeks ago now, I think it was, and he mentioned how, like, hey, from a nutrition and a sports science perspective, they have checked on this, and they believe, the Cardinals do internally, it's not going to make much of a difference in terms of the velocity that we see. Maybe it's a tick up, tick down for here or there, but in general, it's not going to change much. I do think there will be certain players that benefit from the restriction of the infield shift. I think that some teams will get creative with the outfield shift, and we'll see what impact that has on some things. But I think in general, the rule changes might be getting overstated in terms of their impacts just a little bit. Yeah, that's the part that I'm just not too sure about because I'm with you. As much as I want to believe that the stolen base is going to be coming back, and that's the one that I think is going to be the most interesting with the shift and whatnot, it's hard for me to believe that you're going to see this uptick significantly in guys stealing bases at every time moment because, one, you still have the talent, you still have the arms behind the plate, and two, I mean, how much have we seen managers just too hesitant to steal? I mean, it's only a certain amount of teams that are willing to be aggressive in the sense of running in pretty much every situation. That's the one that I'm just not too sure about, but I know the the shot, the uh, pitch clock, T-Bone, you saw that in person in the minors. Yeah, I, I saw it in Springfield when I went down to Springfield and caught two games, and just for an example, I saw Gordon Graceffo pitch the first game that I went to, and his velocity did not move much with the pitch clock. I think it dropped maybe a mile per hour when he got late into the game, but that was because, you know, he one, he's still a minor leaguer, so he's still building up and learning to pitch as a professional, and, and two, I think if I remember correctly, it was like the highest pitch count he had thrown all year, too, when I went and saw him, so so I think that was part of it. But again, it wasn't like he was throwing 97 down to 92 by the time he got to the fifth inning. It was like 96, and he was hitting that still consistently. Uh, in, in terms of the way I look at this, I think there are certain players that will benefit from some of the rule changes. For example, I, you mentioned it, Tommy Emmons. You probably see him get an uptick, but that's because he runs more yeah. often than most players. I think guys like Jock Peterson, who are good hitters, are going to benefit from the shift being banned. But guys like Joey Gallo, I don't think it's going to affect them. He hits fly balls. I don't think he's a very good hitter. Cody Bellinger, the same way. Don't think he's a good hitter. Not the same guy since the shoulder. I don't think he's suddenly going to be back to MVP form because the shift is banned. So there are some guys that are going to be affected by it and, and others that are not. And the other thing on the stolen base for me is, it, you mentioned it, Alex, Baseball now views doesn't view the stolen base as it did back in the eighties. It yeah. feels it it views it more as too much of a risk of giving away a free out. They, yeah, they view it as an immediate and, out. And I don't think that's just going to go. Oh, the base expand a little bit. Boom. Okay, we're going again. I, I think if it's going to happen, think the pickoff rule will have a bigger impact than the bases being expanded. But and also, I think it's going to take time for people to start to see what yeah, the numbers look like. Sure. Not just over a season, but over like ten seasons before be people trial. say, okay, you know, the success rate in stolen bases went up. Five percent is that more worth it for us to be running? Some teams may say yes, some may not. I, I don't think it's going to be a big thing that changes this coming season. Uh, six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. We'll get to believe it or not here in just a minute. I also want to reference the ESPN article uh, from Jesse Rogers, who's going to be joining us tomorrow. He pulled ten different executives from around Major League Baseball on how they think the impact will be of the new rule changes in terms of the offseason moves, how they impact the offseason moves. Six said it will not impact it whatsoever. Four said eh, it might impact it a little bit. 
none of them said it will be a significant change in, ter- in terms of how their team will approach the offseason. And that coincides with what we heard from John Mosaylock as well. I've heard him interviewed, I think, three different times now when asked about how the rule changes will influence their decisions. He basically said, we don't really think it's going to change much for us. And maybe that changes in the coming years, but right now they, they don't expect it to. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, college football playoffs expansion is officially here. That was decided last night. I think it's going to make more games matter for more fan bases. And I think that's a great thing for college football. We'll get into that coming up in 15 minutes. Believe it or not, is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Look at what's happened to me. I can't believe it myself. Suddenly I'm up on top of the world. Feels good to sing this again. I tried on Thanksgiving family told me to shut up. They were all sick. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. I never thought I could feel so free. Flying away, I'm a prayer. Who could it be? Believe it or not, it's just me. It's time for Believe It or Not here on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text should line. Should we start a boy band? Get your text Next song, let's uh, let's sing I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. BK, start it off. Not yet a girl. Well, you just ruined the lyrics up, man. Oh. It's I'm not a girl, not oh, yet a woman. Damn it. Right. Come hey, on. Right. I got them all mixed up. Let's start the vote to kick BK out of the boy band. Hi. <laughs> all right, we're starting a duo. All right, from the 314. Like Hall Oates. Guys, believe it or not, the Cardinals signing or not signing a significant free agent this offseason will have a real impact on their attendance next year. I am not going to believe this. It's funny that people actually believe that. Final year of Wayno, they'll be able to sell that. I think regardless of what they decide to do, Albert Pujols will come out of retirement mid-season and say, I'm back. They're going to be a... That would be cool. Yachty will say, I'm, I'm, I'm back. That was a great Gamzinger prediction right there. <laughs> oh, thanks. Throw it out there, and if it hits, we're bringing that back mid, mid-year. Mr. 95%, right? I, I don't believe this because I think that the Cardinals will get really good attendance next year no matter what. They're going to be a pretty good team. They're going to have the Wayno thing to sell. People will go out to the games. Yeah. I agree with that. I'm not going to believe I'll it. amend the question, but yeah, I believe it. Unless they are just really bad. Or not which- believe it. They're not going to be. I mean, even if they win 83 games, they'll win the Central Division and be a playoff team. But see, so. here's the thing, and, and this, like, people bring this up all the time, but it's it's not just you're going to watch the game. It's something to do in the summer for a lot of people. Yeah. Like, they want to take their families there. So, like, as much as you'd say, stop going to the games and show Bill DeWitt what's up, it's not going to happen because this is something to do in the summer for people. And you so, can only go to the zoo so many times. Exactly. Only go up in the arch too many times, you know, BK? I know, buddy. You're a big fan of it. I know you are. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for Believe It or Not. Guys, believe it or not, John Mosaylock will make at least one move that legitimately surprises all of us this offseason. Believe it. Tucker Barnhart will be a Cardinal, and I'll be like, are you kidding me? I don't think that would shock me. I'd go, hey, way to go, Mo. (laughs) Uh, I'll believe this. I will, too. And the reason... Wait, did we say signing or do we just say off-season move? Just a move. Just okay. a move. Just wanted to make sure because I'm not sure it'll be a signing that'll shock me. I, I think there could be a trade that I go, whoa, I yeah. did not see that coming. Kind of like now, Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, and, and it doesn't mean it's going to necessarily Cedric be. Mullins. Like, that would shock me. I like just it. Just throwing that out there. 
it would shock me. But nobody just throws that out there. I, I do think I do think they do a trade that Show I would expect. Otani. Just throwing that out there. See, I think that would be less surprising. Not, 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 the, not that the Cardinals oh. We We all think that there's at least a chance that he gets traded at some point within the next year. Are we? I don't think that people expect Cedric Mullins to be traded this offseason. He's like a, a really good player. He's Baltimore's in his prime. Baltimore's trying to compete this upcoming season. But like, if there was a deal that included Jack Flaherty yes. for Cedric Mullins, that would be it a baseball trade in the hockey sense that could make sense for both teams. I like it's it. just a hypothetical. It, uh, there is no like concrete reason to believe it's going to happen, but you know, that would be throw it out there, man. Yeah, I, I believe it, it too. I think that there's going to be something that would make sense. It's like that putty. Just throw it at the wall throw and see if it sticks. Right. What do you think? Oh, no, I'm going to believe this one. I, I, despite what people believe, John Moselak will make a move and it, I think it will surprise us in, in the sense of a trade that goes down. Believe it or not, guys, this one comes from the 314. Nolan Gorman ends up hitting 30 home runs for the Cardinals next year. I'm not going to believe this. I think I think you could see he had 14 last year in 90 games. I think you could see probably 20 to 25, but I don't think you're going to hit 30 this year. I think 30 is probably a couple years away from him. I think he finished with a total between majors and AAA. I think it was like 33, 35. Doesn't count, Tanner. 30s at the majors. Oh, sorry. It's all baseball. It's like man. saying Tyler O'Neill hit 80 home runs in one season between double A and triple A. Uh, I, I'm going to believe this. I, I am banking on now. I don't want to bank on every young option that the Cardinals have, but I will bank on Nolan Gorman taking the next step next year. Uh, I, I think he's a guy that has 30 home run power. I think he will put a more. I'm not going to say he's been going to be consistent for a full 162, but it's going to be more consistent. He's going to get rid of some of the gaps in his swing this offseason. I think he's going to improve somewhat defensively at second base. I'm not saying he's going to win a gold glove next year, but he's going to have to work on it if he wants to get playing time because I don't think he's an outfielder, and I don't know if they want to split time with him at DH. I think he's they want him outfielder. at second. So I'm gonna, I'm going to believe this. I think he's going to finish with 30 plus home runs next year. I do too. Whether it's here or elsewhere, I think he ends up getting 30 home runs. And I, I just, and I'm not saying like that he's I threw in the elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> well, you're just throwing everything at the wall to see if it sticks on this That's segment. Right. I mean, we all know that it's at least possible that he ends up having to be the piece that they utilize to get their next catcher. Like he's one of the guys that, for other teams, would be a super attractive player. I mean, if I'm the A's. And you told me that it's possible. I don't know if it is or not, but that it's possible for me to get a guy that projects as a potential 30 home run hitter that could play third base for me every single day and is 22 years old with six years of club control. Yeah, I'm interested in that player. So I, whether it's here or elsewhere, I think he starts just about every day somewhere in the lineup and gets to 30 home runs next year. Uh, 65780 is the air comfort service text line for believe it or not. Guys, believe it or not, the U.S. will win the World Cup before Tanner Hendrickson gets married. This is I, me. I'm no. not going to believe this. I think and here's that, why. I think neither of these are going to happen. So, Well, that's why I was going to say I'm not going to believe this because I'm going to take my chances that I got better odds than the U.S. winning a World Cup. So Honestly, I would agree with that. I, I think too. There's more T-bone. fish in the sea for me than there's the U.S. winning a World T-bone's Cup. T-Bone's like Flavor Flav. He'll find love. Yeah. I don't get the reference, but yeah. Of course not. Flavor Flav. I believe in love. Tanner Hendrickson. You should. I always would side with my guy T-Bone. Or you just don't believe in the talent that U.S. has with the soccer team. I wouldn't say or, that. Or you just believe that Europe's a lot better at soccer than us. And that's, that's right. a fact. Watching a documentary right now on FIFA. 
That's if it's, is it on Netflix? Yeah, that's you should a probably good stop doing that, and you should probably spend more time watching college basketball. I'm trying to inform myself on soccer, Alex. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sure. This just in. FIFA is wildly corrupt. Oh, it's unbelievable how <laughs> like, bad it is. Like cryptocurrency. It is nuts, man. I'm not getting into that conversation. You can have that off air. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for Believe It or Not. Guys, believe it or not, the most likely player to be the Cardinals catcher next year is Christian Vasquez. No, wasn't the report today that there are other teams battling for him? At least the, what was Cubs. It, the Cubs that are potentially in the, in the Reds in you mentioned. They're in on Barnhart. Again. Barnhart. That's right. I, I'm not going to believe this one. I I think they're going to Mo's got to make a significant move somehow. And that significant move seems like it's going to be the catcher position. So I, I can't see them making a significant move elsewhere and then just saying, well, we got Christian Vasquez also. It's going to be the catcher. Yeah, I, I'm not going to believe this be, twofold. One, it comes down to I think that the catcher position is where they're going to have the quote-unquote upgrade the offense even though I don't think that uh, Kirk or Murphy or Jansen are protection for Goldie Arnado, but I think the Cardinals can sell themselves on that and the second one is I, I don't think they want to spend over five million dollars on a catcher and I'm starting to think Vasquez is going to get more than five million dollars Contreras will get more than that I'm wondering what Barnhart's now going to get so I think they're going to go the trade route where you've got Jansen, who's going to cost less than $5 million. Kirk will cost less than $5 million and Murphy will cost less than $5 million. So I'm not going to believe it. I don't think it will be Vasquez. I don't think he is the most likely option. I think the most likely route for the Cardinals is that they trade for somebody. I would say it's, I think the, if we're going likelihood, I would probably go Jansen one, Murphy two, Kirk three from the trade route and then I would probably have Christian Vasquez four with Narvaez five I think it'll be one of those five guys as the Cardinals catcher next year though I think I think that pool somebody from that group will be their starter that feels right to me probably end well, up go with your gut man signing a Tucker Barnhart now trade with Colorado forever the hell their guy is Will Smith is going to be the starting catcher for your hey I'd be on board with that that sounds great I'm I'd in. be on board with that. I was going to say maybe tinfoil I was thinking of last night maybe because we keep bringing up all these names maybe they really are going after the Dodgers catcher can you imagine that that would be one hell of a surprise I would be very excited for that offseason I mean what, what would you part with for Smith? that's the thing that I was wondering is like what would even what would you trade for him what would they want is the bigger question. Like, I would, I would think pitching? Flaherty would have to be yeah. involved. I mean, I'd be on board with that. Sure, but he's like the starting point to get a Will Smith. I mean, it would. It well, would. I don't really know if lot. you could do something to tell me make this trade, and I'd say no unless it was involved with Jordan, Jordan Walker. Walker. Yeah. He's the only one. I would think it would. Would they probably want? I, they don't have a third baseman right now, so I would don't think Nolan Gorman, Arnato, man. Gorman oh, okay. would probably be involved in the package in some capacity. Maybe Gorman, Flaherty, and like a Mason Wynn? Maybe. Yeah, I, I would I'd do that trade. That. I'd, I'd do that trade. I'd be out on that. I, like Gorman for Smith, I could understand making that kind of departure on it. But then like Flaherty, like if you bring in Will Smith, I have to look and see what his number in terms of his salary is going to be. But I don't think it's getting emotional, man. That was a really big pause. I miss. I would miss Jack. Is it because? Um, is it because Will Smith saved us from aliens? No, gosh, well, you. Um, I. If you part with Jack Flaherty, then they would have to be interested in going after a top end starter. In my mind, what about Gorman, Burleson, and Flaherty? 
I, but are you going to sign a, am I going to get a top end starting pitcher free agent? At the, I would assume in this scenario, you're probably going out there and acquiring like bring back Quintana, bring back. I mean, you're Quintana. not getting rid of a bunch of salary here, so probably somebody like a Quintana, whether it's him See, or I'm somebody out, else in that I'm same range. I'm out on that then, because I if you're the way I think the Cardinals are approaching this offseason, I said this when they brought back Wayno, when they basically locked up the five man rotation, is that they are banking on Jack Flaherty putting together a healthy season and him being their ace. If you trade Jack Flaherty, I don't think you have an ace on this team. And I think if you bring back Quintana, you've basically got a couple of twos and a couple of threes. And I don't think that's good enough. I think you need someone that has the upside of an ace. And this is why I don't think they're getting Will Smith. Yeah, and that's why I don't think you pull off that trade either. Unless you were willing to say, hey, let's really blow up the payroll. and Let's go get Rodon or someone like that. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get into the junk drawer. But next, college football playoff expansion is officially here and I think it's great for college football fans across the country. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We got word officially last night. They said that the Rose Bowl signed off on the new college football playoff. Yeah, what they thanks, really Rose meant Bowl. is the Rose Bowl was told you're signing off on the college football playoff expansion. So college football is officially going to a 12-team playoff format starting in 2024. So we got one more year based on my understanding of this system. And then we're going to 12 teams getting into the college football playoff. Alex, I think it's awesome. I think this is going to be similar to, but maybe more so, like a, a, a even better thing. What we saw with the NFL, where when I first heard that they were expanding the playoffs, I was like, do we really need an extra playoff team? And then we got an extra playoff game on Wild Card Week, and I was like, this is great. This is the best thing ever. We get two full days of the NFL slate, and that I, I couldn't ask for anything more. I think college football, it's going to be something similar. I think the biggest thing you hear that is the argument against the expansion of the playoff is, yeah, but this is going to devalue some of the games during the regular season. And there's some truth to that. The game between the Ohio or between Ohio State and Michigan, that's not going to have the same value in the future as it did this year. Because one of those teams, Ohio State in this case, was likely booted out of the college football playoff by losing that game. Like one game, that was it. That's all it took. Alabama, the LSU game for them. That was a huge game in part because if Alabama loses, it could completely change the outcome of their season. Why can't you push those games back later in the season, though? Because you just don't know when they're coming. Like, you don't know which game's going to end up being the one that matters that, the way that that did. But I think that there will be more games that matter more. Illinois versus Purdue didn't necessarily feel like a huge game nationally this year. If Illinois still had a chance to win the Big Ten in this format, the, the new 12-team college football playoff format, they were still technically alive at that point in time to make it to the college football playoff had they won that game against Purdue. We and if they did, <laughs> they could be in the, the Big Ten championship Trash. game, and then they could get an automatic qualification into the college football playoff. More games for more fan bases will matter more throughout the regular season. This game this weekend between TCU and K-State, it's for a spot in the college football playoff. 
if you ended up having this format. ACC, Clemson, they're playing for a berth into the college football playoff this weekend if this is around. So I love the way that they decided to go about it. It's going to be the top four conference champions that get a bye. There is two more conference champions that are automatically in. So like Tulane this year would probably be an automatic qualifier into the college football playoffs. You're going to get new teams that are involved in this. And then you also have the next six highest uh, rated teams. I think it's awesome. I like the format. I like the fact that the first round games are going to be played on campus as opposed to at a neutral site game. And I think within the first two years of this thing, more often than not, you're going to hear people saying, eh, if I was against it previously, I'm now in favor of it. I think this was the right thing for college football. I I just I don't understand the sentiment of from people that like thinks it devalues certain games. I mean, I understand what you're saying there, but. At the end of it all, you have more teams fighting for playoff spots, which means there are more meaningful games towards the end of the season. And when you look at the 12 team and the format that it would be as it stood today, if this was the format, I mean, you got four weeks of just incredible college football postseason action. Mm -hmm. And it's so wide open this year because I don't think there's one great team in college football that honestly, it's a gauntlet. You don't know what's going to happen with all of these games. So I think it, there's nothing but positives to come from this because it just it drives in more people wanting to watch the playoff atmosphere for these games rather than just saying, all right, you got the full season and then we just got a couple of weeks of bowl games and playoff action and then it's game over. Like no longer am I going to be sitting there saying in college football, I'll wait and see what the championship series looks like because I don't really care. You kind of know who the two dominant teams are in the best of four. Now, if you've got 12 teams fighting, that makes it a lot much more appealing. And, and I really like that you're going to get a non-power five that's guaranteed to get it. For sure. Because I I said this last year, and I was afraid Cincinnati was going to get screwed. Did they get beat handily in the playoff? Yeah, but I thought they were one of the four best teams in the country. And I just like seeing those smaller schools get an opportunity to be in the playoff. And I also think this allows for even more chaos when you look at Like, let's run through the scenario right now where if you were to look, if this was a 12-team playoff this year, if Purdue were to somehow upset Michigan in the Big Ten title game this year, Purdue is automatically in. Michigan and Ohio State are probably still in. Who's the team that didn't get to their conference championship game that now is sitting that thought, okay, we're probably in, we're safe, until Purdue locked up an automatic berth that goes, oh, bleep, now we're Tennessee, out. Tennessee, probably. Yeah, and, and Tennessee's looking at that going, wait, well, hold on, we're a better team than Purdue. It don't matter, Purdue won their conference championship. They're automatically in, and I, I like that chaos. I will be curious to see if this means that conference championships potentially go away. And now you see more of like a round robin type of approach during the regular season. And they crown the champion based on the regular season, as opposed to an individual championship game that holds that much potential value for the college football playoff. I I don't know that we'll go that route, but we already saw a little bit of that with the big 12 a few years ago, eliminating their conference championship game. I will be curious to see if that's something that is an unintended consequence of this. Yeah, I hope we don't do that because it's kind of that's how college sports seems like it's run for a long time, that you always have a regular season conference champion and then you've got a conference tournament champion, whether it be just a you know Pac-12 championship game or you look at college basketball like in the I'll use the A-10 as an example. Slew could be the best team in the A-10 this year in college basketball. They don't win the A-10 tournament. There's a chance they don't make the NCAA tournament. But is that tournament. right? Like, I think, is, that, is I that think that's right. I think that's right. Because if you're the best team in that conference, in my opinion, not only should you win the conference uh, 
regular season, you should win the conference tournament. I think the at-large bid for those teams or the, the automatic bid for those teams personally should go to the team that wins the regular season because it's over a longer co- period of time. You could have a bad week in college basketball, and instead of you getting into the conference tournament, hell, you could have a bad game. You you crush everybody in the first few games in the tournament, and then in the championship game, you have an off night. Don't shoot the right amount of threes the way that you typically would, and boom, you're upset. It's over for you. You went 30-2 and two that season or whatever. The team that's going won 18 games, and they're going in front of you. Yeah. I, I think that the other team should be rewarded, but that's neither here nor there. Somebody on the text line asks, hey, guys, can you please explain how this format would be laid out? 12 teams just doesn't seem to line up for me. So here's how it works. And it's a little confusing, but this is the easiest way that I can explain it for you. The six highest ranked conference championship champions will get an automatic berth. So it's the power five teams and then one group of five team from what I understand. So you'll have Pac-12, Big 12, Big 10, ACC, SEC. Those five champions will all get an automatic. And then the best of everyone else. Or the best of everyone. Hold on one sec. Non-power five. And then you'll have the the best of the non-power five. So this year, right now, that would be Tulane. Would get an automatic berth into the college football playoff. If I'm not mistaken, I think the non-power five championship games, there's only one top 25 matchup, and that is the Tulane-UCF game. Because I don't think the Sun Belt, Mountain West... Mac, that's correct. What the other one have a top? They're the only team. top twenty-five teams that remain. So the winner the, that would get in. Correct. Now the next six highest-ranked teams, other than the ones that I just mentioned, so the six champions, the next six highest-ranked teams would get an at-large spot. So the way that that would work in this individual season is you would have Tennessee, Alabama, um, Ohio State, Penn State, Clemson. Utah and K-State. Now that could change after this upcoming weekend where you still have some games to be played that involve a lot of those teams that I just mentioned. They could potentially drop down in the standings based on the results of this game. That's another reason why I wonder if a college football uh, or if the conference championship games could go away because it, it also devalues some of those teams that make it there. The top four conference champions. So of the six that I mentioned, the four that are the, the top ranked, they would get a bye. So then the other eight teams that remain would play in the first round, and those games would be held at the higher-ranked team's home stadium. So, like, Clemson would play against Penn State. Penn State's ranked higher right now in the college football playoff rankings. Penn State would host that game in Happy Valley. Ohio State would be hosting Tulane. Alabama would be hosting Utah. Tennessee would host right now K-State. And then those teams would then move on to the second round where they would play one of Georgia, USC, TCU, or Michigan as currently constructed. So it it ends up being four rounds of the college football playoff where the first round is the teams that didn't earn the bye because they didn't win their conference championships. The second round is the teams that earned their conference championships that were the four highest rated. And then we get on to the semifinals and so on. And and I see both arguments for keeping and moving away from the conference championship game because one, to me, there's. I saw someone text me, well, then Michigan has nothing to play for this weekend in the championship game. That's not necessarily true because they're playing to try and earn a bye, and I think yeah. a bye would be super important. But then the other aspect of it is, well, all these other teams like Tennessee, Alabama, Ohio State, they're all getting a bye leading into the playoff, and they're that's kind of an advantage for them. For the two teams that win their – so like Tulane and let's say Clemson, those two would probably be – the teams this year that would play in the first round. Well, now they've played an extra game ahead of the teams that didn't make their conference championship, and they got a bye going into that, which makes this an un- unprecedented scenario as well. Also, there's no way to make every game matter. There's just no way to do it. Like, 
if Georgia loses this weekend, even in the current format with four teams, they're still in. Like, this game does not matter on Saturday for Georgia. It doesn't, for all intents and purposes. If they win, they're in. If they lose, they're in. The only thing that changes is who they're going to play in that first round of the college football playoff. And by the way, does it matter really to Georgia who they play? Not really. I think they expect that they're going to beat whoever. And on top of that, there's no hosting of a college football playoff game in this current format that we have. So there's no risk of them like not hosting against a certain team or not getting a bye. It's just a matter of where they play and who they play against. It's the only thing that changes if they lose this weekend. So it doesn't matter for Georgia now, and it wouldn't matter for Georgia in the new format. Nothing would change for them. There's no way to make that game matter. You just can't. In the in the current format or the new one, the other games, though, that you're seeing this weekend, they matter a whole hell of a lot more under the new format than they do in the current format. So I'm super excited about this. I just hope that they don't expand it any further. I think this is the right number. Don't go to 16. There's no reason to continue expanding this. We don't need a month long thing where or two months long of college football trying to become the NCAA tournament. Then it devalues it. it. This is the right number, in my opinion. I I agree. But the reason I think there will still be conference championship games and the reason I still see expansion in the future. A lot of dough to be made. This might be the most that they could get, though, because you already have the conferences that have their TV deals. You're going to have to start pulling back on the regular season if you expand it much further. And I don't know that teams are going to be willing to do that because the conferences are making so much money off of their current 12-game regular seasons. Maybe, but I could still see a way that they find a way to make more money and do it. Coming up in 15 minutes, is this the pivot for the Cardinals? We'll get into that coming up at 1.15. But next, Ben Heisler, Managing Editor for BetSida, joins us here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We're always happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line when Ben Heisler, the managing editor for BetSided, is on the other side of the phone. Heisler, we appreciate the time as always, man. How you doing today? Ben Heisler is at the bottom of an ocean right now. We're going to try to reach the top with him. Maybe he'll come up for air here momentarily. Alex, I want to start by talking or with Heis talking about the college football stuff that's coming up. We're getting into this weekend. We've got the conference championships and then we'll get into bowl season. And I, I want to get his thoughts on betting on bowl yeah, season. T-Bone just told us don't bet on bowl games. Yeah, I, he said don't put a penny on it. And this is from Tanner who wins bets constantly. Yeah, oh, well, let's let's not go out yeah, on one there. <laughs> I, I don't even think we need to go that far. I do think this year, maybe more so than ever before, it's going to be difficult to bet on college football bowl games because so many guys are transferring. Like, Mizzou is going to have half of their roster gone by the time that they play in their, their yeah. bowl game this If you're year. betting on Mizzou bowl game, you need to spend your money elsewhere. I mean, it, they're going to play in a reasonable bowl. No, I and know. there's a there's like 
a hundred of them. They, they, they're seemingly never ending. So I, I will be curious to see where he goes on that. Well, and the question too is we talked about the expanding playoffs. Like how, how many games are guys going to be missing when it gets to that point too next year or in two years when they get to that point where they're expanding and more guys. There's more games that guys might be unwilling to play in. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Ben Heisler back on the line. Hopefully he's not underwater any longer. Heis, how you doing today, man? I'm well, I told Tanner not to call me specifically while I was scuba diving. Way to go, uh, Tanner. What happened? This is this is what we uh, pay him the big bucks Honestly, for. Props to you for scuba diving in December. Heis, it's a- yeah. Listen, you got to uh, you got to get uh, some treatment for your body wherever you can, right? I, whatever you got to do, Ben Heisler. That, that's what we've always said about you. Um, it's a big weekend for football. Like you've got the conference championship slate in college football, and then you've got a couple of really excellent games on the NFL side of things. Where are you putting your most attention from a betting perspective this week? More so on the NFL. I feel like I've had a better sense of these matchups throughout the entirety of the season. I feel like there's just so much to be able to try and keep track of that if you're trying to just dip your toe in all the water surrounding college basketball and NBA and NHL and college football and NFL, you can certainly do it. But I think it helps to be able to make sure that you have at least one or two specific areas that you feel pretty good about. Maybe you can find a few trends that help you out along the way, but um, I, I think this is also a good time where weird stuff can happen too, especially with some of these games not necessarily meaning all that much. There's still some variety and some movement that can happen in the college football playoff. Um, so to me, I kind of think about the Alabama and Georgia last year where we were expecting um, a certain outcome and Alabama came in and, and mollywhopped them. And it just didn't feel like it was set up because you knew that both teams were going to make the college football playoff anyway. I just feel like right now in the NFL – uh, it's a better time to be able to read these teams knowing what's at stake and, and knowing sort of the longevity of what we've seen um, from a 12-game sample size so far. We're just going to gloss over. He just used the phrase mollywopped. It's a great phrase. I like it. T-B- uh, BK didn't even react. T-Bone and I both got really excited. Is this like a normal phrase? Yeah, for Ben Heisler. Uh, yeah, I think I've been using the, 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 the phrase. And listen, I should in, in today's time and in, in, in era, I should probably know the context of mollywop a little bit. No. Using it nilly, you know, willy nilly, which also could be another one that uh, doesn't come back for a while. But um, it was used, and uh, it's been said, and here we are. Hi, BK uses words all the time. He doesn't know what they mean. He just throws them out there. Speaking to of strike, slap, or slam into either once or repeatedly like to the, wallop one, like the Mollywop BK a couple of times. BK, uh, hi. So let's let's get into that NFL slate where you said it feels like there's a little bit more predictability, and let's just start with this game tonight because out of the games that are predictable, this one feels unpredictable when you got the Patriots and Bills. The Patriots have been playing better lately. Bills have been kind of the opposite side of this one. And honestly, I don't know how I should read this one because it's being played in New England. Yeah, this is probably one of the ones that I'm going to be staying away from so far tonight. I I honestly expect with Bill Belichick's defense, the way that they've played consistently uh, over in New England, they've been one of the better defenses in the league. Now, they'll still have their their moments, especially thinking about that game against Minnesota on Thanksgiving. Granted, it was a short week, but uh, this is still a team that is generating a lot of pressure. Um, and Josh Allen isn't 100% healthy. Uh, they're, they're, they've made plays that they've needed to. It, it's kind of weird. You think about the Bills and I talk about all their struggles this year, but they're still an 8-3 and three team with uh, the biggest margin of victory uh, in the NFL, and they've, they've been that way for the last few years. Um, but anytime you're getting Bill Belichick, especially uh, with the familiarity that he has with this offense, with their ability to, to take key weapons away, 
Um, and, and also their ability to stay in front of guys like Gabriel Davis, uh, if you're going to go ahead and neutralize Stephon Diggs. I don't mind the Patriots I, at, at four. Um, it's probably a lean for me as opposed to a play. Uh, we've also seen Thursday night games traditionally lean towards the under. Um, and right now that game's kind of been moving around a little bit too. So I, I'd say wait until you can find the, the best line that you can, uh, seeing anywhere from 43 and a half. If it gets up to 44, I will, I will definitely take the under. That's a, a nice key number to get to, but, but most sports books are hanging around 43 and a half, but a lean for me, probably on the Patriots uh, at plus four. I think that's the best line that's currently available. I know that uh, FanDuel right now has it at three and a half. They do. And I've got the alternate line at plus six. Oh, and a half. Okay. So <laughs> stick with what Move uh, that one stick with what Heist said. That's right. Uh, we're talking to Ben Heisler here on one one ESPN. Heist, the Chiefs and the Bengals have yet another matchup between those two. They played twice last year, didn't go the Chiefs' direction. Once of One of those, of course, was in the playoffs, and uh, I was with Tanner and Alex for that game, and it was not an enjoyable experience <laughs> It was a great for night me. for us. Chiefs are a two-point favorite in this one. On the road in Cincinnati, Jamar Chase going to be back for the Bengals. The expectation is that Joe Mixon will also be back for them. Do you have a side that you like in this game between the Chiefs and the Bengals? I, I do. It's a little bit more on the specific side, but I, I do think you're going to see a lot of points, especially in the first half. So I am on the over on the first half in this game to be able to grab it at 25 and a, and a half. It's currently at 26 or 26 and a half, uh, depending on, on where you're looking at. But this is this sets up as a back and forth game early on. And that's the way that Kansas City played against Cincinnati the last two games that they played. them. I mean, it was the second half that they weren't running the ball. Cincinnati dropped eight guys back and the Chiefs for whatever reason for two games in a row weren't prepared for it. Uh, Andy Reid even talked about it at his press conference this week that it's something that if they decide to go in that direction against Mahomes and company this week, they have a plan for it. And whether or not they're able to execute it, I, I think one key element is being able to run the football. They have weapons. They have versatility in the running game that they're able to use a little bit more effectively. But uh, the, the things that I look at for, for this game, guys, is that the Chiefs Despite the fact that they have not been a good covering team this year, you go back to the end of last year, they're 4-0 against the spread in their last four December games. And also, in matchups where they're going on the road, when, when the, the money is starting to move against them, that's kind of been their best moment. I saw this from covers that the Chiefs are 15-6-1 against the spread in their last 22 games on the road against teams with winning records. So that's, that's a long sample size with Patrick Mahomes at quarterback of going back taking care of business on the road and not only winning those games because they're favorites in the bulk majority of them, but also being able to cover the spread as well. Now, Cincinnati has been a really good covering team this year. It's them, Tennessee and the New York giants that have been the best covering teams in the NFL this year at eight, three, you know, they're also three and one at home against the spread. But I do think Kansas city, especially early on is going to be able to generate some points. And frankly, the, the Cincinnati offense getting guys like, like Jamar chase and, and Joe Mixon back, should be able to generate some on their own. And then it's the second half game of adjustments. It'll be a great game, but I do think you'll see plenty of points early. Hi, so am I crazy in liking this spread for Tennessee at plus four and a half because they're playing in Philly, which is not an easy task and they're coming off of a loss, but they also have been playing much better on the road, at least in their last couple of weeks. Tennessee is one of my favorite bets of, of the week. I, I don't love that you got it at four and a half. It was available earlier this week at six, but uh, I would bet this game, uh, Alex, down to four and a half. I, I think that's a reasonable line uh, to be able to lay it here. And Mike Vrabel's been the best underdog coach in the NFL since he came into the league. Only you know, Mike Tomlin over a longer period of time has been uh, better when it comes to being uh, a straight up underdog against the spread. Uh, this is from Sharp Football Analysis. You mentioned that Mike Vrabel has covered 68% of his games 
as an underdog of four points or more, that's 15 and seven against the spread. So this is a a matchup for Tennessee that I think works really well because the Eagles can't stop the run. Um, They've also turned their defense around. They're number one in the NFL at stopping teams on third down. And they're also top two in the NFL at yards per rush. I mean, that's what Philadelphia does as well as anybody in the league. So I think they actually match up really well. And everybody was riding the Titans coattails last week. Weren't able to get it done, still kept it close. But I do think this is a team that's going to keep it close and be able to cover by about you know, four or five points. They also have a quarterback now that can complete the forward pass, which seems important in <laughs> when you're playing football in the year 2022. Uh, hi, speaking of forward passes, the Dolphins do a lot of it. The 49ers are pretty efficient at it, and that's a game that we're going to see on Sunday at 3 o'clock as well. I really wish this game was at noon, so that way we could get one at noon, and then we got the Chiefs-Bengals at 3, but neither here nor there. Do you have a side that you like? Dolphins at yes. the 49ers? with San Francisco as a four-point home favorite. I I like the 49ers here, and I've been a Miami Dolphin and Mike McDaniel fan throughout the entirety of the season. Like That's a team that's really impressed me. I'm also in the under in this game. I got it at 47. It's now down to to 46 and a half. The the 49ers defense, guys, is legitimately awesome. They have not allowed a second-half, forget touchdown, they haven't allowed a second-half point in, in their last four games. And if Miami had Taron Armstead, um, their starting left tackle available for this game, then I'd feel a little bit more secure about Miami. This game opened at three. It's all the way down to four. Uh, the 49ers right now, especially with Miami's inconsistencies um, on defense, they've been okay at stopping the run, but, but San Francisco is a really good offensive line. They'll beat you with play action. Uh, you have Brandon Ayuk, who's making a, a nice difference in the, in the middle of the passing game for them and on the outside. Kittle is healthy. Debo Samuel's available. And McCaffrey can catch passes out of the backfield. I mean, it just kind of feels like this sets up very, very well for them. Uh, last week, just bad spot only because they were asking to, to cover a really wide number. Um, but nobody knows Mike McDaniel better than, than Kyle Shanahan, and nobody knows Kyle Shanahan better than Mike McDaniel. So I think you'll see a lot of those things cancel out. But ultimately, it's just a more talented side from both defensively and offensively on San Francisco. So I, I like them at minus four. I think they win by a touchdown. If you could only watch one of those games, Ice, obviously you don't have to do this, but if you could only watch one, would you rather watch the Chiefs-Bengals or the 49ers versus the uh, Dolphins? Without question, it's Kansas City-Cincinnati. That's, I, I was talking to, to Matt Verderam, our, uh, my, my co-host over on the Arrowhead Addict uh, betting podcast today, and we were talking about how, like, of all the different matchups, like, as a Chiefs fan to, to be thinking about and excited about, this is probably the game on the calendar that he was most excited about. And I think it's because you know, with Buffalo, you kind of expect to see them a little bit later on in the postseason. The game in the regular season doesn't really matter all that much. But there's not a lot of teams that have had Pat Mahomes' number. And it's not even fair to say he's had his number because he's been decent against them. They're, they're 2-0 and against Pat Mahomes. So I think the question of unknown and whether or not a team like Kansas City, who's always thrived in these spots of when people doubt them, then they go and they just beat the hell out of you. This is a matchup that I am very, very excited for. So, yeah, if, if I wasn't doing the, the red zone thing or going back and forth and the Chiefs and Bengals is going to be on my list for sure this week. CBS put this stat out earlier today. Patrick Mahomes in games where he has a 14-point lead, including the playoffs, against Joe Burrow, 0-2. Against everybody else he's ever faced, he is 44-2. and I don't know what the Bengals do. I don't know how it works against him. But for whatever reason, I guess it's the entire Chiefs team. They had their number last year, so I'm I'm super interested to watch that game as well. Heist, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for hopping on with us today, and we'll talk with you again next week. All right, fellas, be good. Absolutely. That's been Heisler, managing editor over at betsided.com. Be sure to follow him on Twitter as well, at Benny Heiss. Alex, between those two games, which one are you more interested in watching? It's this Kansas City-Cincinnati. I just think that's 
as much as it would be nice to watch Miami and San Francisco, that's going to be a good game. If I have a dedication towards one, I'm going to be the one that's a preview of what you could see in a postseason action. I would definitely say Chiefs and in Cincinnati, just because it's a better quarterback matchup too. When and you I got a lot at, more fantasy reasons why. <laughs> when you when you look at the Dolphins for a game, it's going to be a good game, but you're not going to see the explosive plays because Jimmy Grapple is more of a game manager. Mm-hmm. And Tua, I think Tua is going to end up being the same way when everything's all said and done because he just dumps it off to his wide receivers. Chiefs Bengals going to be more explosive, I think. It's interesting because I I actually think, and this is weird for me to say. I might lean Dolphins 49ers because I don't know how Andy's going to treat this game. The Chiefs and Bengals are almost certainly going to see each other at some point in the playoffs. That's the expectation. He's going to hold back. He might because you're not one game up on them. You're two. Not start Mahomes. (laughs) No, that's a smart one. But Andy has his philosophy on regular season games. There's only a couple of year where he'll change this. Like the Bills game, he typically changes it. A couple of years ago against the Ravens, when that was kind of the the two top teams in the AFC, he, he really showed everything. But more often than not, he wants to win while showing the the least amount possible during the regular season. And then he'll pull out all the stops in the playoffs. I don't know how he's going to treat this game because they beat the Chiefs twice last year, so he might want the revenge there. But if he doesn't, they might come out and look a little more vanilla than what I would hope to see. Dolphins 49ers is a little different, man. Those two teams are are legit battling for a potential number one seed. And I know it, and they're not going to see each other in the playoffs until they potentially get to the Super Bowl. So I don't know. I, I would be curious to see which one of those ends up being the better game. It, it might end up being 49ers Guess versus what? the Dolphins. I'll be at DraftKings. I'll be able to watch all of them at the same time. Good for you, We man. all know Rams Seahawks will be best game this week. All yeah, right. I'll watch Geno Smith uh, write the Rams off. Coming up in 15 minutes, They're he didn't right write off. back. What is the level Who of didn't? panic for the Blues? We'll get Sean. into that coming up at one thirty. Coming up next, though, what if the Cardinals don't want to meet the price for Sean Murphy? And they aren't all that interested in Danny Jansen. And Danny Jansen's the only player available from the Blue Jays. What's the pivot for them at catcher? We'll talk about that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Omar Narvaez, left-handed bat, which I know the Cardinals are in search for. Great hitter for a catcher. And defensively, I mean, the Milwaukee Brewers' top three of their rotation, which is one of the best in baseball, they all love throwing to him. He's been he's been a guy they want behind the plate. Omar Narvaez does not get enough love. He's an offensive force at times that, let me tell you, if he's hitting seventh or eighth in your lineup, you've got a good lineup. I think Omar Narvaez kicked the tires. Cardinals looking for a left-handed bat. You're looking for a catcher. You can blend the two together with this guy. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. The dude that has a 71 OPS plus last season needs needs more love. So that was Greg Amzinger on the morning show earlier today discussing who the pivot could be if the Cardinals don't go out there and either sign Wilson Contreras or trade for one of the Blue Jays guys or Sean Murphy. What do you do then? And I think this is actually a a possible scenario for the Cardinals. Let me lay it out for you guys. Sean Murphy, the market might be astronomical. 
it might be something where the Cardinals get to their puke point and say, that's just not worth it for us. Because it seems like, Tanner, you've seen all the reports too. Alex, I'm sure you have. There's like 10 teams interested in Sean Murphy right now. Oh, and that's good for the Cardinals. The They're Guardians, according to reports, are like the number one team that is interested in him. I don't know what it's going to end up requiring. I don't know who they're targeting or what kind of a package they're targeting, but the A's are going to get a ton for Sean Murphy. So let's say in this hypothetical scenario, that's not in their cards for the Cardinals. No pun intended there. That was totally intended. Let's say that in this scenario, the Blue Jays decide we want to keep and build around Moreno and Kirk as our future catchers. They think Moreno is going to be the everyday catcher with Kirk being a guy that catches like 60 times a year and DHs another 60 times a year, play 120 games next next year for him. And Danny Jansen is the guy that they decide to trade. There is a very real possibility. The Cardinals aren't interested in Danny Jansen because he's only done it for a year. He has an injury history and he's just okay defensively. In that scenario, Alex, and oh, by the way, let's just assume in this scenario, which I think is possible, maybe even likely, Cardinals aren't interested in signing Wilson Contreras for $20 million a year, and that's what his market is. What is your pivot? <laughs> Greg Gamsinger said Omar Narvaez, who last year hit 205 with an OPS below 600 yeah, and but, is just okay defensively. But three years ago, 22 home runs and a 813 OPS. He's had a good history <sighs> in his past. What is your pivot? Uh, who's the catcher that you would want in this scenario? I don't know if there is a pivot. I mean, there's, there's just nobody out there that improves your team the way that they have been saying it. I guess if I'm going to go after somebody, it's going to be defense first and pick your poison of who is the best defensive catcher out there. I I, I think Zanino, it would Hedges or Vasquez, maybe T- Tucker Barnhart. Those are your that's four what I was going to say. I think it would probably be Vasquez or Tucker Barnhart because. Tucker Barnhart, I can see the Cardinals making the excuse of, well, he's got a history in the NL Central, so he knows how to go up against these guys. And then with Christian Vasquez, I think that's probably the sexiest name that's not one of the top catchers available to you. So those would be my two pivots. And I got to be honest, I hate every single one of them. Yeah, I, yeah none of the pivots are really that great. Taylor but loves I, Tucker Barnhart. I, I think if I were to take... A pivot. I think I would go towards Tucker Barnhart because I, I saw the report the Reds are interested, but it can't be that serious. He's going to get nothing. He he was yeah. hurt all of last year. He didn't hit well offensively. He's, he's still never a pretty hit good, well. He's, he's still a pretty good defensive catcher. So I think my pivot would be towards Tucker Barnhart. You could do a one-year deal with him. Maybe you do a one-year plus like a club option if you think that maybe he can – Get back to being a be a decent offensive player, and if you want another year on that contract, just to make sure you have someone there and take time in developing Herrera. But I think Barnhart would probably be my pivot. I, I think Vasquez is going to have a decent market, especially if it sounds like the Cubs are interested. And he's a decent, like we mentioned, he's not the top guy, but he's not the bottom guy. He's right there, that perfect middleman that everybody's going to love. So I think if I were to take have to take a pivot, it would be Tucker Barnhart. But then you also have to shift your focus and go, okay, how are we going to? Uh, augment the offense because Barnhart is not that guy. We're not. That's the real thing. The problem is I think they have to. And and, and I don't know how you do it. It probably needs to – that conversation should switch towards the shortstop market. But I, I think you still have to augment the offense. I don't think you can escape this offseason and say, Barnhart, fourth outfielder, bullpen arms, ta-da, But that's what done. they're going to say. Then they didn't have to trade the assets to acquire a catcher, so you're still keeping Lars Newtbar and Nolan Gorman and Alec Burleson. It's going to be, well, we got a lot of options on our team, and we got better defensively at the catcher position, and we've got these players coming up in the minors, and you can never have an <clears throat> excuse, uh, 
never have enough pitching. Can I give you another name? <laughs> that is like that the exact opposite. Like there's two different spectrums of this free agency market. One is like Omar Narvaez slash Tucker Barnhart, where it's all defense, no I was offense. Say, what end of the spectrum is that? All offense, no defense. Can I give you a name? Is this Mike Zanino? Is this Brad nope. Miller? Millsy? Nope. Gary Sanchez? Yep. Oh, no. I convinced myself on him last year, and he had an awful season, and so now I'm out. Gary Sanchez hits the ball really hard. But he's not even a catcher for them. He he played like 100 games behind the plate last year. Loose term played. Now, to be fair, the offensive numbers weren't there. The underlying numbers look really good. The actual numbers are quite bad for (laughs) Gary Sanchez. Last season, he was about 10% below league average, which for a catcher, given what the market is, is pretty good. He hits for a little bit of power. He gets on base okay. He strikes out a ton, like way more than you would want him to. He swings and misses a lot. But most of the market catcher-wise is a whole lot of nothing offensively. This would give you some pop offensively. And in this scenario, again, this is a backup plan. I do not want them to do this, but if they get frozen out of the trade market, they're not willing to go the Wilson Contreras route. Your other options, I think, are not very good. And I think Gary Sanchez is probably a one-year deal on a cheap prove-it kind of a contract where he's trying to recoup some of his value. I could see how you get there where it's a combination of he and Andrew Kisner and you get like 80 games a piece out of them behind the plate. But it's not super inspiring, but neither is Omar Narvaez. Neither is Christian Vasquez, who's probably a three-year contract, and I don't want to be locked in on a Christian Vasquez personally. None of these are good options. But I And I understand the money's different here, but like everybody's complaint about Wilson Contreras was, well, he can't manage a pitching. We think Gary Shan- Sanchez can manage a pitching staff? No. I almost called him Sanchez. I, I don't <laughs> think this is the route that the Cardinals would go because it, it feels very unlike and them. And Mo has referenced, I know that he hasn't come out and said they're, they're making it a priority to find a defensive catcher, but he has referenced that defense is always in the mindset of this 100%. team. And, and I'd be shocked if they go this route. I just wanted to present him as an alternative because it is more in the Wilson. If we don't think they're going to be willing to do this with Sanchez, then I think they're definitely out on Wilson well, Let's Contreras. amend it then because that's a trash suggestion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Sorry. The, the other the other reason I don't like the idea of a guy like Gary Sanchez that is just basically offensive mind and not a very good catcher is and he's looking for a rebound deal is because if it if it fails his offense is still bad and he's not providing quality defense which at minimum you're going to get that from a guy like Tucker Barnhart or Christian Vasquez to me then you're in a bad spot to where let's say a catcher comes available I don't know who it's going to be it may not even be like this past deadline where it was Wilson Contreras I don't think it's going to be someone like that but let's just say a catcher becomes available at the trade deadline I I think it then blocks you makes you less likely to go out there and trade for a catcher if need be and I don't want to be in a spot where you have to trade for a catcher too because then you get in the conversation that teams were having with Contreras of okay do we want to give up assets for this catcher is he good enough in the middle of the season and do we want to bring in a catcher that's now going to have to learn our pitching staff and go through that process do you want to put yourself in that position where you have to trade for a catcher in the middle of the season no no, that's what I'm saying I don't want to put myself in that position and that's why I don't want I don't want to do Gary Sanchez on a one-year prove it deal because I'm not sure he's going to prove it and if he doesn't (laughs) I'm stuck with Sanchez Kisner and then I probably have to explore trade possibility in the middle of the season, which I think is worse than exploring during the offseason. That's why if I'm going to do a pivot point, I want someone that at minimum is good enough defensively to wear a one-year deal. Even if they don't produce offensively, 
I feel confident they're going to provide me solid defense or someone where it's Vasquez and it's a two, three-year deal and it's not as pricey as what Will Contreras will be. Here's another thing that we need to take into account when it comes to the pivots in the catching free agent market. Mike Zunino, injury issues. Tucker Barnhart, injury issues. In his past, we've seen some stuff pop up with Gary Sanchez. Austin Hedges doesn't know that he actually goes to the plate during the games because he's exclusively defensive-minded. Last year, he was a 165 batting average. Uh, So far in his career, he is 40% below league average offensively. good? He's one of the worst hitters in all of Major League Baseball, so that would put him completely off of my list. We just found the pivot guy. Honestly, if you're looking for somebody that doesn't really have injury questions, is pretty good defensively, and at least brings a bat to the plate whenever they go up there to swing, the only two pivots on the market are Christian Vasquez and Omar Narvaez. That's it. So I say all of that to say this. I know that the prices are going to be high when it comes to the trade market for Murphy or one of those Blue Jays guys. I know there are real questions about whether or not a guy like Danny Jansen is a long-term answer to your catching questions. All of those, I think, are are more palatable for me than going the free agency route. It also makes me wonder, like, I, I think Christian Vasquez on a three-year contract would be bad business for the Cardinals. That being said, I could see how you get yourself locked in on Christian Vasquez based on the other alternatives for you. That That feels like... The pivot for the Cardinals, I think there's only one, and I think it's Christian Vasquez because of all the other options that we've just discussed. And and it feels like different scenario, of course, but it feels kind of like that fifth year for Fowler where it was you didn't want to give a fifth year, but to get him here to St. Louis, it required the fifth year, and you were stuck where you needed an outfielder. And I could see the same kind of situation playing out. Again, different style player, different position, but it's, yeah, we really don't want Vasquez on a three-year deal, but he's our best option, and we need a catcher. So I could definitely see that playing out that way. I think way. he's the only pivot. I really do. There are people, by the way, that are texting about Salvador Perez. Guys, the Royals aren't trading Salvador Perez. He's a future Royals Hall of Famer. They don't trade guys like that. And he's also on a contract that's more than $20 million per year, and last year he started like 60 games behind the plate because he's dealt with a ton of injury uh, issues in recent years, including getting Tommy John surgery. So I, that is not a move that I think the Cardinals would make. It is definitely not a move that the Royals are going to be interested in making. I checked in with a Royals guy recently. They're they're just not going to trade him. They would have to get way too much in in a deal that it wouldn't make sense for the Cardinals to do that. They would be more likely to go get like Sean Murphy than trade for for Salvador Perez at this point in his respective career. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll get into the BK and Ferrario Rewind. But next, what's your level of panic right now for the St. Louis Blues? The Athletic put together their panic index. We'll give you ours next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. So what's the level of panic that you have right now for the St. Louis Blues? They're right around 500 on the season. And over on The Athletic, they did a NHL contender panic meter. That sounds fun. That sounds like a Dom thing. On a scale of one to five, they put the Blues at a three and a half at this point in the season. They said it is concerning how often they've been outshot and outchanced at even strength so far this year. Bennington's resurgence provides some hope that they can fight back into a playoff spot. But ultimately, the club's defensive lapses and their blue line holes are a significant red flag. Three and a half out of five is where they stand right now on the panic meter. Alex, where do you stand? I'd probably put it at a four, four and a half. And here's the reason why. 
when you refer to panic, it's because uh, you expected better things than what you're getting. And I think that's where the Blues are at right now. Like, you expected this team to be one of the top teams in the Central Division. You expected them to be there with Colorado as one of the best teams in the Central. And they haven't been. And we talked about it yesterday. Despite their seven-game win streak, they really haven't won games against competitors with the exception of Colorado and Vegas. So if I'm going to to rate a panic with this team, they're 500 right now, 22 games into the season. We're past the quarter mark of the season, and you really haven't seen that that sustained dominance that you've seen last season where you could say, you know what, I can see it. I can see this team because Colorado and Vegas gave you a slight feeling of it, but then the rest of the way you kind of lost that because of the competition you went up against. So I'm not thinking this season is just a lost season. I still think they can win some games and put a string of victories together and be competitive, but it's at four for me right now because I did not expect this type of team this season. I mean, they're my, their goal differential is minus 15, which is the fourth worst in the national or in the in the Western Conference. And the only teams worse than them are Arizona, Chicago, San Jose, and Anaheim. And all of those teams are not playoff teams. I, I think I, I think three and a half is the right mark, and I, I think that's where I would put it at is because I, I and this may shift into the next couple of weeks because they've got a really tough schedule coming ahead of them. I think part of the reason I'm not in the four to five category in terms of the panic is because the Western Conference just hasn't really run away from them yet. Yet. That may change, but I mean, for the, all the struggles that they have when they're sitting only one point out of a playoff spot, I, I'm not going to panic over that just yet. I, I think that they have, I think the offense is better than what it has shown so far this year. And Defensively, are there concerns? Yeah, I, I'm very concerned about the defense, but again, Bennington should be able to steal them a handful of games, and then I think the offense will will be better at some point to where I'm not going to completely panic just yet. I think three and a half is where I would put it to. I think three and a half to four. I think that's the right range as to where I would be as well. And I think it's it goes back to the first conversation that we had today about the Blues lack of scoring on the season and how it kind of we always seem to fall into this conversation since Craig Burby took over of are they getting enough shots on net? And it's always been the hey, we're going for quality over quantity. And I do find it interesting that Baruby has kind of made it known this year, hey, we do need to get more shots at the net. Like, yes, of course, we're we're always wanting that, but you also have to pay attention to the quality of those shots. You just don't want to randomly start shooting. Um, I, I think this year, because the shooting percentage has come down significantly from where it was a year ago, that's where we're getting back into those conversations again. And I, I just have to wonder is the quality of player where it was a year ago in terms of your your top nine. You don't have David Perron up there. You have a few guys that have taken a step back from where they were last year offensively. The fourth line, I was hoping Torpchenko could be one of the guys that drove offense from that unit. He's now going back down to Springfield to get a conditioning assignment. He's not at full strength just yet. I, I've got some questions about the team. I am not in full-blown panic mode I do think that the schedule is about to tell us everything that we need to know about this team. The rest of this month is an absolute gauntlet. You get basically no nights off in terms of the opponent that you're going up against. So while my panic right now is is not at that full five alarm, uh, full five alarm yet, it it could be by the end of the month. What would you guys say you need to see improve for you to? have that panic meter drop down. And offense. What, is it offense? Yeah. Because for me, I think it's defense. I I know that this team is always, unless they make a personnel change, I know that they are going to be limited defensively. They're just, 
I, I can look at the personnel and we can see their defensive unit is not built to be a dominant defensive group. No, but they're, they should be built to limit the amount of odd man rushes the other way. And that's the part that if I see them get to the point where they're not limiting the odd or they're limiting the odd man rushes to maybe one or two times. And th- also this isn't defense, meaning the defenseman. It's what we talked it's about with Curbs yesterday. Yeah. It's the full group. But until I see this team limit the amount of odd man rushes the other way, I, I, I'm just kind of always going to be around this mark because as great as Jordan Bennington is, you can only stop so much when the team is just limiting rush after rush after rush after rush. I lean towards defense too because I think there have been a handful of games where their defense just hadn't even given them a shot at winning the game. And, and like I say that, and I agree, part of it is on the fourth, but I also look at the defensive pairings as well, getting beat back door a ton this season, uh, not not getting guys away from that. And I'm not saying they should be doing the Chris Pronger like, Getting guys clear of the net by cross checking oh, down well, the you ice. You can't do that. <laughs> but it's been it's been it's been too easy for teams at times. And for as well as Bennington has played, we've talked about it. Bennington's numbers don't reflect the season that he's having because there's been so many easy opportunities allowed in front of him. So I would actually lean towards the defense because I think there have been a handful of games where the Blues. I I agree. The offense is going to have to probably outscore opponents in terms of like three three two four three games for the Blues most of the season for them to get wins. But there have been games I felt like this year where the offense hasn't even been given a chance because the defense has been so bad in front of their goaltending. I think the thing that's hard to, or the reason why it's hard to answer this question is because the two are connected. I mean, if you spend more time in the offensive zone, it makes your defense look better as a result. And that's why my panic meter is so high because you can't fix, like it's going to be very difficult to fix two things that are the same problem. I think they're interconnected though. Like I think if you end up getting better offense and the more sustained offensive zone time, and we, we've seen this improve from the Ryan O'Reilly line, but it's it's kind of just the one line that's really started to get mm-hmm. to there. Maybe you can get more of that. Then I think your defense looks better as a result because you're not spending as much time with guys trying to push people out in front of the net. So while I would lean towards the offense, I agree with you guys. I, I do think their their defense has to get better. I just think it gets better as a result of them getting better offensively. And it's just a matter of which one comes first or can either come first. And hopefully it can improve when you get Thomas back tonight. Hopefully Thomas makes that that what was the Russian line better, which in result makes the Shen and Kairou line better with Barbashev on it. And then you get to the point where you can use a fourth line. And as much as I don't like Jake Neighbors being on the fourth line, at least you're hoping that Jake Neighbors can thrive in a fourth line role for you until Torpchenko's ready. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind coming up next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Join the holiday spirit by supporting this year's 12 days of t-shirts hosted by the Fastlane and 101 ESPN. If you donate $25 online between now and December 12th to support the Little Bit Foundation, you're going to receive either a Jamie Rivers or Brad Thompson 101 ESPN jersey as a gift for your donation. You can make them now at 101ESPN.com. The 12 days of t-shirts is powered by McBride Holmes. Also over at 101ESPN.com, that's where you can find the podcast page. It's presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. You can also find it on the 101 ESPN app, which you can download free on your mobile phone. All right, Alex, let's finish with the Cardinals today and the BK and Ferrario rewind.
Rewind. I was listening to the Fastlane, which coming up at 2 o'clock yesterday, and Brad Thompson said something about how he thinks that the Cardinals should go about their offseason. It kind of stuck with me. We spent a lot of time talking about free agency because that's the flashy stuff. And honestly, it's the easiest stuff to talk about. You have a list of names. When you're talking about trades, you have the league. And you're trying to figure out what the best fit is. I think that is where the Cardinals bolster their team this offseason. I think that's probably true. And we talk about it in relation to the catching position. I think it also might be how they go about it with their outfield as well. I mean, you think about like a Jesse Winker who could become available for the Seattle Mariners coming off of a down year for him. But if he was able to rebound next year, man, that guy could really help you. And he's at a reasonable cost. So one year deal worth like seven and a half million bucks. Those are the kinds of players that I think the Cardinals are typically in on. And if you look at what seven and a half million dollars could get you on this free agency market, it's not a guy as good as Jesse Winker. So I think if we're looking for the Cardinals to make significant upgrades and they're not in on the top of the market players in this year's offseason, I think the best way for them to go about it is probably by dealing from some of their surplus value in their outfield, in their pitching staff and trying to acquire guys that way. And that's why when we did our Believe It or Not segment earlier and we asked, believe it or not, John Mazalek makes a move that surprises all of us. I think that's why all of us kind of believed it because as much as you want the free agency market to work and BT is absolutely correct, like the names are there in front of you. So you just make the comps of, oh, well, this guy makes sense for the Cardinals. You don't know what the rest of the league has available to you and you won't know until you get to the winter meetings. None of us heard Jordan Montgomery's name brought up at the trade deadline and John Mozalak pulls the trigger and is able to acquire the starting pitcher. So I believe that they'll make a move and I believe it's going to be through the trade market and I don't even know if it's going to be one move. They might be able to upgrade this team with multiple moves fixing the catcher position and also finding a starting pitcher, a bullpen reliever, or maybe just an outfielder, like you mentioned. That's the other thing. It's like, we're looking at the roster that they have currently. How do they upgrade from that? What if they trade one of their current starters? They trade one of their current outfielders. They get a catcher via those trades. They end up adding a starter in free agency and then trading for an outfielder. Like there could be a, this team is ripe for a lot of movement in the trade market Because we've mentioned it, how many names could you throw out there right now that wouldn't really surprise you if they were in the playoff lineup in your starting outfield? There's like seven different dudes that could conceivably start in your outfield in the playoffs next year, depending on how the season ends up going. And that's before they add anything via trade or free agency. Maybe they decide to deal one, two, maybe three of those guys. You look at the rotation. I like what they have in their starting five. Do I think they could upgrade, though? Sure, they could. And you could do that either via trade or by trading one of your guys currently and then bringing in a free agent. So there's ways you can go about it. And that could also increase the amount of payroll flexibility they have if they are able to trade somebody internally that's scheduled to make, whether it's in your rotation, 10 plus million or one of your position players, five to 10 million dollars. What I don't want them to do is I don't want them to trade for a guy who's got high upside and you're expecting another younger player to be an impact to this team. I want some track record. So like Jesse Winker would be fine for me because it's somebody who's done it in the past and is coming up in this circumstance. As much as we loved the Tyler O'Neill trade and as impactful as he been, if you go into this offseason and you make a trade for somebody like that, that's been in the AAA and you're saying, oh, maybe we get the best out of them. You're once again doing what you already have on this roster. You're banking on somebody who has a very small track record to be a asset to a World Series contending team. I, I'd agree with that. I, I I think that makes sense to where look for track record rather than looking for upside. Because as you said, they got a lot of guys that can already do that. I think at minimum they make two trades this off season. I, I think one is definitely going to be the catcher position, and then I just don't know where the other one is. And, and honestly, I mean I don't know how I feel about that. But if you look at the track record 
over the last couple of years for the Cardinals. They're better. We've said this before. They're better at trades than they are in free agency. So if because you said, they stay in that middle tier in yeah, free agency, and, and that's where a lot of the mistakes get made. And if you said, hey, the, their two biggest moves this offseason are two guys in via the trade, and then they sign like some bullpen arms, I'd be okay with that because I trust them more to evaluate talent and go make the trade for them for that player then I trust them to sign a free agent at this point. Still if, doesn't take away from the fact, too, that you have these shortstops available to I you. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. We were, we're all in agreement there, but if they're not going to get into that market, I think this is probably... Right. Yeah. I, I would. My preference of what they do this offseason, number one would be trading for a catcher, one of the two guys that we've mentioned the most, uh, either Kirk or Murphy. And then number two would be sign one of those shortstops. Like, that would be good enough for me. I would yeah. be fine with that being your offseason. But they're probably not going to do that, so the secondary piece... If we had to guess right now, what do you guys think is the most likely position that they trade for? Not a player, because it's hard to guess that. Maybe I'll try to go tonight through some of the guys we can go through whether or not it makes sense for them. But BK analysis there. <laughs> if there was a pl- position that you think they're most likely to trade for, not named catcher, oh, what do you think it would catcher. be? I would probably say... Because I think it's outfield. I would say bullpen arm. I, I could totally see that. That's where I... Because I could see them just sticking with the outfield and just signing somebody for... $5 million via free agency. Yeah, that, that's how I lean. Is I, because of the surplus you have in the outfield, I don't know if you trade from the outfield to go get another surefire thing in yeah. the outfield. I, it doesn't feel like a Carlos move. I think they'd rather bank on the upside of O'Neal yeah. and Carlson. And O'Neal's a guy that I circle as trade bait, too, along with Nupar. I think it'd be more likely they get a big-time bullpen arm for someone like that. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next. There's more fish in the sea for me than there's the U.S. winning a World Cup. T-Bone's like Flavor Flav. He'll find love. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.